Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and hi, 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 and welcome to this comedy of errors. That is today's episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today was meant to be a very different episode. As I'm sure you all know, I'm currently working on our Pipes of Peace episode, and Whilst I was working on part one, where I'm doing all of the context and the history of the album, it's recording and that sort of stuff, and during all of that, I was due to record my album review segment with my mystery guest, whose name I'm sure you've already read in the title. But me and this guest were booked to talk about Pipes of Peace after a short interview segment where we discussed his work, with heavy emphasis on short interview segment, and... In the way that all good conversations really do, we ended up just digressing and going down tangents and paths that neither of us could have predicted. And I'm not going to lie, I much prefer what came out. I'm going to be doing the Pipes of Peace part two part of this episode, the album review, on my own now. And instead, this is going to be a bonus episode that is going to be made up of the wildly wandering conversation that me and my guest had instead of sticking to the plan of action which was to talk about Pipes of Peace and the songs in depth and whilst we do touch on Pipes of Peace throughout this episode you will quickly see that me and my guest just have so much fun talking about Paul and the Beatles in general that it was always going to be impossible for us to stick to a plan you know we never had a chance Uh, My guest today really requires no introduction. Obviously, you've read his name, and for those of you who recognise the name, then you know why I'm so excited to do today's episode. If you don't know who Ken Michaels is, Ken Michaels is the podfather of Beatles media. He has been doing Beatles radio since 1982, I believe, and that show has been called Every Little Thing, where he plays Beatles songs, Beatles-related songs, and all sorts of media and discussion and interviews and stuff like that. That's been going strong ever since then and is now, I think it's on like 80 radio stations. It's absolutely insane. He also does Talk More Talk, which is his latest project, where it's a video cast that's done live on YouTube and Facebook. I've been watching them lately. They're really fun. But the first way I came into contact with Ken and his work was through his first podcast, which is called... The Things We Said Today, another great Beatles title, and if you haven't heard of it, if you haven't listened to it, the moment you've finished this episode, please go and check it out, because it contains some of the best original Beatles content out there. I feel so lucky to be able to have had Ken on, he's been a friend on Facebook now for quite a while now, and I've been wanting to set this up for so long, but we could just never get the dates right. And whilst I am so proud of the episode that you are about to hear, I do have to preface it by saying that it is going to be a bit of an unconventional interview for two reasons. Uh, The first reason relates to the interview itself. Me and Ken, I think we talk about it at least once or twice, where the stuff we talk about 
before and after the interview whilst we're still on Skype, and Skype is recording, that some of the best chat actually comes out. So in honour of that, I've actually decided to include the majority of that content. That isn't just me and Ken talking about the logistics of how the podcast is going to work and stuff. But all of that bonus chat is going to come in the form of a prologue, an epilogue, to act as bookends for the episode, but you're also going to notice a break halfway through as well. And the reason for that break is because I actually had to rudely end the first interview that I actually did with Ken the first time we spoke, because my sister burst in, and in this mad panic, I had to go right then and there. There was a supposed emergency that I had to go and deal with right then and there. Turns out it was nothing. Turns out it was a load of hullabaloo over nothing. Uh, Not that my sister was to know once we both got there, we finally arrived, what was going on. But that brought that interview to a crashing halt, and Ken, in his infinite kindness, agreed to uh, about a week later come and finish off the interview. So you will hear a quick break about halfway, two-thirds of the way through the interview before Ken comes back, and I think we actually reference it there as well. But yeah, despite all of that, despite having to stitch this episode together in a very Frankenstein way, the chat we had was phenomenal. I had so much fun, and I think I made Ken laugh a few times as well, which is always good. Folks, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm just going to start playing it right away. Let's dive right into it. This is my conversation with the legendary figure in the Beatles world, Ken Michaels. I'm glad we finally got around to this because uh, this has taken far too long, really. Mostly, uh, well, 999% on my end, but yeah. <laughs> oh, mate, no, I've been looking. I've, I, I've been looking forward to this for ages. I've been binging things we said said today madly. I was literally listening today to the Revolver at 53 one. Okay. Yeah, and I can't believe that's 53 years old already because I can only remember just two years ago the um, the Pepper one being 50. I was like, oh, right. well, oh, well, that's interesting. And now we're already looking at the Abbey Road one, and obviously after that there'll be a Let It Be one. It's a shame that, that they never put this kind of effort in for the ones pre-Pepper, though, really. Well, the question is, what are they going to do after Let It Be? Yeah. So you can't just do from Sergeant Pepper on, and even then, Ooh, you uh, you, you, you've left out Magical Mystery Tour and uh, the song Some Yellow Submarine. So... You know. Yeah. Does Paul still not consider Magical Mystery Tour to be a proper Beatles album? Like, does he only consider it the EP still? Ah, uh, it's tough to say. Yeah, you know. He, he seems to be very conventional because it's like he still thinks of Band on the Run without having Helen Wheels in it. You know, that's <laughs> you know, that's how it came out originally. That's probably how he thinks of it. Yeah, because I mean, I wouldn't mind if the world kind of just agreed that the American Magical Mystery Tour is just better. I don't. I don't mind that. I really don't, because mm. especially just as like that, you know, as an early vinyl purchase, it was great to have all of those extra songs just just to have them. Like, I'm never going to turn down more Beatle content, you know. Uh-huh. Um, it's a shame I haven't been able to find the EP though. That would be well, would probably be a lot more expensive actually. I'll actually skip the uh, physical intro because it's it's quite long and lengthy, and it, it it's just going to take up time. So I'm just going to cut right to hellos, basically. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I should have got the countdown from a, from a day in the life to play. Five, five, four, four, three. <laughs> if only Mel Evans was still alive, we could probably hire him and have him 
do oh, that for Well, if he wasn't killed by the Beatle Illuminati for his, <laughs> for, his, for his book, you know the truth, Ken. You know the truth. Will we ever get the real truth about that? I don't know. I mean, my dream is to do a goofball comedy about Paul is dead. I think that's the best way to get the uh, the story out there in a in a fun way, and Mal and Mal Evans' death of death would probably be the uh, pre credit sequence or something like like that, you know. Well, that might be the only way that I tolerate it because the whole Paul is dead thing is one of the few topics I don't like to talk about. Oh, but if really? you do it, if you do it in a comical way, I'd be more. No, it'll be like bit like Billy Shears or William Campbell, whatever. Like it's like he's kind of swept up along with it. His it, you know, he's a bit of um, I don't know, a Jack Lemon type or a or a Woody Allen type. You know, he's just kind of like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, gosh, oh, oh, okay, I guess I'm going along with this, and then, <laughs> ha- you know, happenstance happens. You know, or the other one I want to do is killing Ringo, where the main character goes back in time to murder Ringo Starr to become the drummer in the Beatles, and it's about would he just be the drummer, or like does he turn around in like 1964 and say. Oh, you know, I'm I'm the drummer of the Beatles. I've I've got this song called Wait. Oh, okay. <laughs> like like he hasn't gone straight to yesterday. He's not been a dickhead about it. Oh, you know, or you know, he'll sneak on. Oh, I've written Love to You. Oh, really? Okay. And then <laughs> his shit. So he ha- he has all the songs in his head then, kind of like yesterday. Well, my the, my main point of the review for yesterday um, I'll probably cut this in some somewhere. This is all great chat. I love this. Um, uh, my point of my review for yesterday was everyone who went to that review uh, to that film who was a Beatle fan went in with a better plot in their head than the film that we got, and that was my film. Or the other one would be rather than having a rom com, you send four guys back in time, mm-hmm. you know, and then they have to become a band like the Beatles, and then it would be about you know would they all stick to the same songs and stuff like that. Because uh, I've always been fascinated if you know if someone went back in time, could they do an album where they've got you know Back in Black, Hotel California, like you know <laughs> some, something like that? That would be earth shattering, and would that ruin music? You know, upsetting the nat- the natural order of things. It's it's like if you make Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway cool, you you, you don't get banned on the run. You know, you, mm. you can't mess with the way it goes like that. That would definitely be a, a, a consequence in, like, you know, killing killing Ringo or something, you know, band on the run bombs or something in the future. I think you have some great ideas there. I think you should toss them around. I think it's very, you know, I mean, Yeah, it's very much Paul McCartney smoking a doobie going, yeah, this would be a great idea for a show, man. I think, like, Netflix could do it, you know. <laughs> I don't think Glyn Johns would like it, though. I think it'd storm out. <laughs> right. I'm just going to cut three, two, one. Hello there, Ken. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you, Sam, for having me on your show. No, thank you so much for being here. I've wanted to do this talk for so long now. Like, for so long, you've just been a name that's either been on my phone or commenting on Facebook posts. Like, oh, hang on, is that the Ken Mocker from the podcast? And I was like, oh, gosh, this whole Paul McCartney community is so interconnected and well-read that, you know, I've just wanted to get all these people on. Kit Tool is in my sights. I'm going to nab her for something in the future, definitely. I'm going to start this, this episode off with the most British question ever, every time. But where are you calling from and what's the weather like over there? That is a brutal question. I am calling from Milford, Connecticut, United States. And right now the weather is uh, pretty nice, mild in the 70s. The sun is out. 
sky is blue. It's beautiful. And so are you, Sam. Ah, oh, well done. This is off to a good start. Is, uh, I mean, <laughs> any Beatle puns will win me over immediately. Just slip them in. I do not mind at all. One of the things I like to do at, at the start of these things in the kind of the in more interviewee portion of this is just a bit of a rapid fire. First thing that comes to your mind, little round of Beatle and Paul McCartney questions, just to kind of lay mm. the foundations of who you are. Obviously, I've just explained to you in a very lengthy paragraph, but this is where we really get to know the real you. Mm. What is your first memory associated with the Beatles? Well, it would have to be hearing I Want to Hold Your Hand on the radio. Oh. But I don't remember oh. I don't remember exactly where I was because that would have been I was 4 years old when that happened. But overall, the the year 1964 stands out so much in my memory because as someone who listened to the radio in the United States, they completely saturated the radio on top 40 uh, stations here. And it was one song after another and you can I always distinctly remember putting on one top 40 radio station hearing the Beatles changing to another station hearing the Beatles. <laughs> It was it was like that, uh, and I had a little transistor radio that I that I uh, hung up to my ear mm. um, before I actually had a stereo, and it was just constant Beatles music and so much Beatle product all pouring out in 1964. So it wasn't just the first memory; it was really 1964 in general, and being hooked onto the Beatles. Oddly enough, I always asked my mother, I asked my mother before she passed away because. I wasn't sure if I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan that night because I've seen it so many times. I don't mm. remember if, if that particular night I was up, but she told me that she would have had me in bed by then. So uh, I don't even think I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan when they debuted. Oh, so you don't get the generic American memory of the Beatles. That's so unfortunate. That is so unfortunate. Everyone seems to have come out with that one. Yeah. Favorite Beatle album and favorite Beatles song. Top of your head. Go. Well, Beatles album changes from year to year. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Uh, don't worry. Everyone says that. And I feel it's more like monthly. Actually, it would be the White Album now. Um, the White Album I love so much because of its extreme eclecticism. Mm. The fact that the same band can go from Helter Skelter to Honey Pie in the same breath <laughs> and then go to Revolution Number 9. And, you know, there's so many different styles of music on the White Album, and I always admire artists that can do seemingly everything, like Paul McCartney, for example. Mm. Favorite Beatles song? That hasn't changed for a long time. It's Hey Jude. Ah, that, see, that's, that's a bold choice, actually. You wouldn't think that Hey Jude would be, but I think, obviously, it is kind of one of the most synonymous songs with them, so it's very impressive that you're standing by your guts with a choice with a choice like that i always feel like whenever i choose a beatles song that's my favorite my innate hipster contrarianism takes over and i'll just say something like martha my dear or flying and i'll be like yes uh -huh. that's definitely my, my 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 favorite but if i had to really push it you know it'd probably be something like fixing a hole that's probably one of the ones that really really struck me oh. when i was younger did you enjoy the um, the white album anniversary edition that came out Oh, sure. Yeah. Are you kidding? Um, having three discs of outtakes mm. plus the, the, the CD of all demos and in the best sound quality ever of the demos, that was a revelation. Um, it's kind of funny in a way. When these box sets come out, I listen to the outtakes first. I care more about that than the new remix. A hundred percent. Yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. Yeah. 
So for the first month or two months, I'm listening to the outtakes mainly. And then after that, I don't go back to it all that much. But I know that I will. I know that I will, especially in the case of the White Album. You uh, know, it's, how about you? Do you? Are you the same way? I'm glad I'm not alone because like, even with the album that we're going to be discussing today, Pipes of Peace, and we are going to be discussing Pipes of Peace, I'm not sure if I made that clear. Um, I remember when I, when I got the remastered edition on Spotify, and it's like, zoom, straight, all the way, right past through, through our love. I was like, ooh, what's simple as that? What's Ode to Koala Bear? Uh-huh. Uh, what's it's not on, and that's always something that's that's uh, fasc- fascinated uh, fascinated me more. You know the stuff that never made it out, and that's why I love doing my uh, hot hits and cold cuts episodes where I can just talk about every obscure minor McCartney song because it's got to be over a thousand he's written now. It's just it, but prolific isn't the word, and especially when like things come out like this year, for example, um, Frank Sinatra's party, and like oh my gosh, that's. Mm. What was it called? Fishy Moods Underwater? Fishy Matters. Fishy underwater. Matters. Ah, oh, you've bested me there, sir. <laughs> yeah, and just hearing stuff like that. like I think you guys on a things we said today would talk about just, just the amazing ability where he can take something from so long ago and then bring it and make it, um, you know, contextualise it in the modern day, like uh, put it there, having, um, what was it, Mom, uh, Mama's Little Girl as the B-side? That's like a... Yeah, it's kind of like a twenty-five year jump between between re- uh, recording and releasing that, and Fishy Matters Underwater. That's got to be forty-five plus. No one else but Paul could do that. Well, I think Fishy Matters Underwater was done around nineteen seventy-six, I believe, but we don't know when he came up with the words. No, that's the thing. The backing tracks were done around that time, nineteen seventy-six. So when he really finished the song, we don't know. But the mere fact that even if he just had the backing tracks then, and he still remembers it <laughs> with all the other songs that he's written as something that maybe he didn't finish, and then he revisits it and brings it back, he must have some memory. Mm. Or does Greg Kirsten just go on YouTube and type in Paul McCartney demos 1971 to 1985 and just get that four-hour playlist, and then he just comes to Paul and like, hey, Paul, this... This one's really cool, and Paul's like, yeah, it is actually, yeah, it's not bad, let's do it. There is always that. I'm not sure how familiar Paul is with, with, with all of his work. I've never heard him get the lyrics wrong in that kind of Lennon-esque way, mm. uh, very, very famously. Or did, or, or how, no, I think, did Paul get the words wrong in the Carpool Karaoke episode with James Corden? I think he might have, I'm going to have to double check that. Well, I'll have to do that, too. Yeah, I'm but, you sure know, all, he does. All throughout Paul's career, if you really study it, there's so many songs that he brings back that he worked on years before. It's not like every single song is brand new on the spot, and here it is on the new album. And it's it's something that I find really fascinating the more that you study him. Because mm-hmm. um, we'll mention this with Pipes of Peace, that many of those songs were rehearsed by Wings. <laughs> badly, <laughs> <You know>? badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... I mean, it does go back. It's not like they were just new songs at the time. A lot of songs sit around for a while, and Paul brings them back, or he's thinking about perfecting the lyrics or the arrangement or something. So, yeah, he does that quite a lot. And these are just the ones we know about as well. Does he have a Woody Allen-esque drawer just full of song ideas that you know we'll never know about? You know, once he'll probably sadly take to take to the grave with him. I'm hoping for at least two more albums out out of him though now and then. And then we'll be forced to sit through the, the uh, deluge of 
Apple releasing two-pack style releases of half albums or... <laughs> At least you know with Paul, till the day he goes, he's going to be working. You can wheel me out till I'm 100. <laughs> I love that quote. Favourite Beatle film not made by the Beatles? Wow. I never really thought about that. There's no one that really stands out. I do like Yesterday a lot. Oh, oh! oh I, I think that's it now, folks. I think that's that's. Uh, I think I'm gonna the end in. of the interview, right? Yeah, here. <laughs> I think I'm gonna storm out. Do you, do you mean like a documentary kind of thing? No, it does. It does. It it certainly doesn't have to be. I mean, I, I mean, I was expecting someone to say maybe like backbeat one day, for example. Oh. Across the universe could well, could be a very a, a, a very fine answer as well. But yesterday, I'm, oh, as a Brit who has grown up watching Richard Curtis film after Richard Curtis film, it was very predictable about where where things were going to go. But as I said in my review, the scene with John Lennon made me cry for like five minutes. I was like, this is one of the this justifies the entire film. This is a brilliant idea. I wish the whole film was just ideas like this. And then we had to go back to him releasing all the Beatles music for free uh-huh. to, you know, bring it all full circle. And he gets the girl. And yeah, I was like, yeah, I've seen a movie. I've seen a three act structure and the hero's journey. And it was never going to go anywhere else, unfortunately. I'm glad you enjoyed it, though. I mean, at least one Beatle fan did. No, but if you're including something like Backbeat, I would certainly include that in there. But I'm just I'm talking about a film that has a Beatle connection that's not necessarily the story of the Beatles or the story of someone in the Beatles, like Nowhere Man or something like that. You know, I want to hold your hand is an enjoyable film, you know, but uh, no, I like Backbeat a lot. I love the acting in Backbeat. Nowhere Boy is an interesting one for me because I, I was actually speaking to Jeffrey Giuliano just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the infamous uh, Beatle author. And he and he was telling me about how one of his books was used for Nowhere Boy and how he didn't get any of the money for it. And I'd be very interested to talk to him about what his salacious side of the story is on that. Uh, that would be very in, very interesting to hear as well. My my go to Beatle film though is always um, George Harrison living in 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 the material world. I just absolutely find that movie so rewatchable. I don't I don't know what it is. I think it's just a. Not only is it a good George Harrison movie, but it's a great Beatle movie as well. Like the first half of it, you, like it, even if you've got no interest in watching the second half, like you've got on your Beatle fix, definitely. It's so so well made. See, um, that's you're you're confusing me here because I was thinking more of like the fictional stuff. Sorry, no, no, no. Just yeah. any any film to oh. do to do with about surrounding. Even a film that met you well, <laughs> you could even have a film that mentions the Beatles in an offhand comment if if you want. Oh, well, I would put the Beatles anthology in there, and um, yeah, I like living in the material world a lot. Although it has one major flaw in it, which is that you know it spent so much time on George's days in the Beatles, and then when you get to the solo careers after the '74 tour, I believe it jumps right to. <laughs> God getting killed, and then uh, the traveling Wilburys. You know, it's like what what happened? Yeah, you could just picture this this fat cat, you know, producer going, Marty. No one cares about thirty three and a third, okay? Marty, no, you can't you can't do his version of circles on Gontropo. No, it's uh, uh, it's the same with Paul though. I mean, um, 
after like nineteen eighty, after after John dies, all of the detailed day by day followings of Paul's life just seems to disappear. You know, the amount of trivia per album plummets. The amount of the uh, stories and tales surrounding the recording sessions, there's a huge drop off because people just weren't interested at the time. So it's very much hard to to backtrack that. And that's something I'm going to be very interested in with um. The research that one of your co-hosts is doing for their book as well, which I can't wait to do, um, mm-hmm. to read as well. That's going to be one of my Amazon purchases right away. Finally, what is and and this is a question that was inspired by a recent episode of something about the Beatles. Actually, a, yet another Beatles podcast. But what yep. is the best single book on the Beatles or a book about a solo Beatle that you've ever read? I do like Many Years from Now. Hmm. Although it's way too much about the Beatles, and I wish that Paul would go into his solo career there. But if you ever wanted the equivalent of what John Lennon did for Playboy, going through all the songs, or most of the songs, then I would definitely go through many years from now. And I especially like that book, although some people think it was self-serving, that Paul gave a lot of credit to the other Beatles for things that we didn't know about. Yeah, 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 definitely. So I enjoyed it for that reason. Just a little thing that always sticks out in my memory is when he talks about We Can Work It Out. And the part where they slowed down to a waltz was actually an idea that George Harrison came up with. That nobody... I never heard about that before until this book came out. But it's a little contribution that was made to We Can Work It Out, which I think made a big difference in the arrangement. So just even, you know, you kind of wish George would get a songwriting credit for something like that, but... (laughs) <laughs> what is it with George and waltzes? Because I mean, mine is one big waltz as well, and that's famously spurred John to say, you know, we're a, we're a rock and roll band. We we don't do the waltz, and yet George has done it what four years earlier. John's like smacked out heroin memory must have been failing him <laughs> at that particular moment. Um, that is one of the elements that no one's ever gone into in any particular depth in a, like a Beatle media. Uh, even What's that? Like, uh, Lennon's just crippling heroin addiction during like the let it be era like i think i might be you know maybe maybe hyperbolizing it in in my mind slightly but you never it's it's definitely something that apple brushes on under the carpet i I don't think they're going to sign off on a a big production that would have benedict cumberbatch in it for example that would show john smacked out can't even hold his head up in in the studio whilst paul is trying to write the long and winding road you know it's uh it's a dirty secret well you know i would love to to know more about that because you know i'm hearing more and more how that played a part in the beetle breakup and then i i don't know Mm. if it's just being overdone you know i i just as a matter of fact was uh writing talon cozen about this because uh ken mcnab out mm-hmm. a new book and in the end and he talks about that when we interviewed him in our show and things we said today i saw a new interview with ken womack where he's talking about that and you know alan thinks that it's all overstated mm-hmm. and there are plenty of times during the let it be sessions where john does talk to the other beatles and jokes around with them it's not like you know i i was under the impression and again you have to you have to talk to the people who are really there who are willing to talk about it openly um, you know, that John was very withdrawn during the Let It Be sessions, and Yoko did all the talking for him. I've heard mm. that. And then, you know, Alan has disputed that. 
So I don't really know if, you know, did he just dabble in heroin or how bad a habit really was it? So hopefully we'll find out more about it. Yeah, you could also look at that that behavior, though, as like the kind of the, the manic bipolarism of like energy levels you get with heroin use as well. Like hmm. John, John's on a on a high, and he comes in, and they bash out the one after nine oh nine, and then you know he's he's on a real low, and he's just getting bored of Paul trying to bash out Let It Be for the nine hundredth time. You know, there's definitely, uh, you know, people you know people always say there, there there was two sides to John, there was two sides to Paul, but there was definitely there was definitely a split personality. I think of John during yeah. the Let It Be sessions more 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 than any of the other ones. I'm. But it's not been talked about at all during the Abbey Road sessions either at all. I've never even seen it be mentioned even as an issue. So I'm not sure if things were getting better by that point. Obviously, cold turkey comes out around yeah. a, a similar era. So possibly we're seeing the literal development of uh, John there. But this is a Paul McCartney podcast, Ken. <laughs> um, one thing that I, I, I did want to ask you as a, a Yankee doodle um, with an age... Uh, but befitting of such a question, um, why do you think McCartney has experienced such enduring success in your country, whereas he's kind of a joke still in the UK? Is it something about the American mindset, the the uh, American way of life that makes him, uh, you know, just uh, more popular? Is it, or is it just sort of like a hangover of Beatlemania, perhaps? Hmm, I don't know if I'd put it that way. Sam, I mean, I don't know that the success is, unfortunately, in in the fact that he is this tremendous legend and, you know, he's so revered for being in the Beatles and then whatever success he had on his own. Mm -hmm. And he sells out every concert anywhere he plays in the world. But his new releases don't do that well. And as much as I love Egypt Station, I don't know how you feel about the album, and even though it debuted at number one in America, there's all kinds of reasons why that happened. Oh, the important thing is really, to me, the staying power of the album. And an album will stay on the charts as long as radio continues to play it, if they played it at all. I think the success of Egypt Station, even though I think it was well-deserved, was more to do with all the promotion that Paul did initially for it and the big buildup for it. And the carpool karaoke thing was a, was a big deal. I mean, so many people watched it online and on Facebook and, um, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that Paul debuted at number one the way he did, or just that he made number one at all, because we live in a culture, certainly in the United States, it probably is the same way in the UK where, you know, it's a youth-driven market, mm-hmm. and radio plays music that caters to a younger demographic. And as artists get older, even if you're Paul McCartney, even if you're Elton John or Eric Clapton, it doesn't matter how good your new releases might be. If radio feels that their audience doesn't really care about the new music of an aging artist, they're not going to play it. And, you know, as someone who's been in radio for a long time now, since 1982, since Tug of War, uh, <laughs> which is probably when it all started, um, you know, it, it took me a long time to figure out how radio works. And radio has been the number one factor in determining the sales of records for a long time. That's 
gradually changing, I think, because I don't believe that radio, at least terrestrial radio, is as important as it once was. People mm -hmm. in my business will probably want to kill me for saying that. But, you know, there's so many changes that have been made uh, in the media with uh, Internet radio and satellite radio and uh, sharing uh, services, you know, Spotify and stuff like that. There's so many different ways of discovering music, and radio might not be the biggest way to discover new releases. But, you know, if you follow just about any major artist, even the icons like Paul, at some point, their new music just doesn't get airplay. Or if it does, it gets initial airplay for a week or so, just out of respect for the artist, and then the radio stations just let it die. Mm -hmm. And this also applies to every single genre of music. There are certain people like Elton John, even in country music, Dolly Parton. Stevie Nicks has talked about this. It's, it's Stevie Nicks has said, what's the point in putting together a, a, a new album from Fleetwood Mac and, putting, and spending millions of dollars on it if you know that radio stations are likely not going to play it? So the quality of the music from these older artists doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Radio is barely going to touch it. And unless audiences are exposed to it, the only people that are going to buy it are the hardcore fans who have been following these artists all through the years. I'm not just talking about Paul. And then the album will die off the charts. I think Egypt Station was only on Billboard's Top 200 for five weeks, I think it was. If that, and yeah. That, and and that's, that's a shame because I, I think it was really a fine effort. But Paul McCartney... The superstar, the icon, the legend, the Beatle, that will always sell. You know, he could sell out stadium shows. You know, he could sell out big venues. And, you know, he always will make the news because of who he is. So I don't know. You talk about the enduring popularity. It's, it's you know, it's everything that Paul McCartney is. It's not just Paul McCartney releasing his newest album. Hmm. You know, the history of everything that Paul McCartney is plays a big part. You know, he's always in the news and he always will be. Just uh, going back, I absolutely loved Egypt Station. Uh, Egypt uh -huh. Station was absolutely fantastic. Um, I remember when Tom Waits released Bad As Me and that was the first album he released once I actually got into him. And that became my album. Like, you know, I can re remember my life surrounding that release and all the times I listened to it so vividly. And the same can be said for Paul's Egypt Station. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it does feel like kind of, you know, quote unquote, my album. And I absolutely love it for that. I think it's got a ridiculously high quality to it. There are only a couple of duds. Uh, I probably would have taken maybe like Do It Now out and swapped it with like Frank Sinatra's Party. That's probably about it, really. Um, I think a, a solid effort's a really, a really good word for it. Just going back to Paul's fan base, though. Uh, I was talking about this in my uh, Explorers slash Travelers Edition kind of bonus episode. And it does seem to me that Paul's fan base is so big that it's not even like appealing to a small niche crowd anymore. They are just a crowd within themselves now. It's not like, oh, I'm trying to appeal to, say, Billy Joel fans or something like that, where it is just going to be the guys who were listening back in the day because he's not even really, like, put out new material. Uh -huh. Whereas with Paul, like his, his fan base is so big that it's not even a surprise that the album gets to number one, especially with like 
six versions of it and a lot of the demographic are at an age when they've probably got more disposable income or are having gifts bought for them. So it, it didn't surprise me that Age of Station sold the amount it did, but the lack of a single was the, was the only sad part of that story, really. Mm. And not only that, you know, you talk about singles. And for the last several decades, fans could argue about whether or not the singles picked by Paul were the right ones. But the stations that play the singles, what we used to call Top 40, what's been called contemporary hit radio, mm -hmm. they're not going to play Paul McCartney. <laughs> you know, it's just the way that it is. I remember when The World Tonight came out, and I thought, oh, that's going to be a hit. How can <laughs> that song miss? And, and, you know, it got airplay on, like, uh, VH1 in America, but mm. radio barely touched it. The top 40 stations wouldn't play it. But the thing about his fan base, his fan base can grow because, thankfully, we're getting new generations of Beatle fans all the time who are discovering what the Beatles did in the 60s. A lot of that is through their parents and to some degree what's played on the radio and hopefully uh those people like the parents have not only the beetle records but some of the solo records so hopefully those new fans will gravitate towards that so a lot of young fans love to see paul live you know they want to see him while he's still with us and he has that incredible catalog to go to you know fall back on beetles and solo so yeah the fan base can grow but it's nothing like it was, say, in the 70s when Paul's, when everything that Paul released practically got airplay and it was played on Top 40 radio and young people discover it, discovered it and he had a whole new generation of fans there that didn't even know he was a Beatle. Hmm. So, you know, that's an extraordinary achievement right there. You know? Just going, going back to that, is the kind of story that wings weren't popular like is that a bit of a myth because you do hear stuff like that like you always heard wings on the on the radio you always see the album selling and yet whenever people look back on it even even paul himself that it's always listed as this failure and then like when when i listen to the wings over over europe tapes and paul starts playing these deep cuts from the uh, the wildlife album the crowd are going insane they're like yes tracked from wildlife uh -huh. and you're like Hang on, Paul. What 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 are you talking about? These people are clearly really digging digging this uh, material. Uh, my thoughts on wildlife aside, um, I really wish he'd given that album another forty eight hours. <laughs> shall yeah. we? Shall we say? I mean, have have you heard a lot of the um, Wings Over Europe stuff? Because the way he like, improves Bitbop and wildlife and Mumbo, it's just chalk and cheese. They're so much better than the album tracks. I think they work both as studio and live recordings, although Bip Bop definitely is better live. <laughs> yeah. I will I will grant you that. But yes, I love the Wings Over Europe CD. And, um, you know, the, the thing about your question, and I'm glad you asked that about Wings, because I was a teenager in the 70s, and I listened to the radio every single day, and Wings was huge. Wings had a ton of hits all throughout the 70s, and their albums gradually sold better and better, from Wildlife to Red Rose Speedway to Band on the Run, which became, you know, to a lot of people, it's his greatest album, or Wings' best album. And here in America, Red Rose Speedway, Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, Wings at the Speed of Sound, and Wings Over America 
all went to number one on the charts. It's crazy. That's such, that's such a run. That's such a run. That's insane. Yes. And from 1971 throughout all of the 70s, and then further on into the 80s, Paul had hits practically every single year in top 10 or number one. He was easily either the number two or three singles artist of the 70s. So when you're having success with hits, and you're also having success with albums, and you're getting played on classic rock stations, and this is the thing, I talked about this in, in my other podcast show, the video podcast, to Talk More Talk, because we had this really interesting conversation as to whether or not Wings was a real band. Okay. But... Um, that sounds. I'm gonna. I'm, as, gonna, I'm gonna check that out. I'm, I'm gonna uh, like that. I'm gonna like that. There was a radio station which just recently changed their format. With, that for years was a classic rock station in New York City, WPLJ, mm-hmm. one of the most popular radio stations in New York radio. And at the time of the '70s and up through, well, even through Back to the Egg, Wings got a ton of airplay. And it wasn't just the Paul McCartney vocal songs. This radio station played Time to Hide. They played Medicine Jar. Wow. They played, they played Wino Junko. Even if you go back to, say, Band on the Run, they played No Words. They played Deliver Your Children when London Town came out. You know, and they even played Cook of the House. <laughs> you know? Low-key, one of one of the best wing songs in their entire catalogue. That 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 track. I've I've really? so, I have such a soft spot for that number, especially during the live '79 Wings tour as well. Uh huh. Like, I love a good underdog story, you know. And uh, Linda belting out a terrible tune is right on my alley. Whenever I go back to the uh, Red Rose Speedway archive edition, I'm like, I'm straight on Seaside Woman. Straight away, I'm on Seaside oh. Woman. <laughs> That's another one that I thought worked very well live. Oh, see, uh, I'm the exact opposite of that because they, they turn it into a kind of a rock number more than a kind of a techno-y Professor McCartney type track. Okay. Henry McCullough, though, he nails that solo live. He absolutely uh-huh. blissed that. Oh, it's uh-huh. beautiful. There's so much from that from from those early Wings days that you know it'd, it'd be so nice for for McCartney to uh, come back to because because we we were, we we were speaking earlier about how he's just he's got so many songs and so much to cover live and he's doing these three hour shows and it seems like since leaving Wings he's both come to terms with the Beatles and embraced the Beatles but he's also trying to always push the new album and those two always get first billing in his list of priorities and Wings always comes like third or fourth. And it would uh-huh. just, it would be so wonderful to see anything from say McCartney one to just past Pipes of Peace that kind of prime era of early McCartney and Wings. It's so oh. so untapped. It's too late for Monkberry Berry Moon Delight. The nineteen eighty nine comeback tour, Monkberry Moon Delight would have been fantastic. But put, he's, mm. he's too damn old now, Ken. I'm not going to get it. <laughs> he's too damn old. Well, where's our Paul McCartney tour where he's it's just him on stage with a piano doing quiet songs to allow his vocal cords to heal? Where is that show? Uh, do you remember like uh, uh, VH1 Storytellers? Oh, uh, please. Some, some, well, we'll uh, at least we had Unplugged. I mean, that was something. 
But, you know, my, my big complaint is that he hardly touches his 80s, 90s material. Pretty Little Head yeah. would go down so well with a modern crowd. They would <laughs> love that. They, I, I can guarantee that that would go down so well. Not the terrible single version, which is borderline unlistenable, but the proper album version. Oh, you know, Sam, we 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 should do a, a show on Press to Play because that that is the most polarizing album in uh, the Paul McCartney. It's both camp. terrible and amazing. Like I'm so frustrated with it, I can't wrap my brain around it. Like it it is absurd, however absurd. <laughs> Very good. Like what? Why doesn't Only Love Remains end that album? That's the obvious song to end. Like I know it's blatantly just doing Through Our Love again. Um, and I, I, I'm honestly not fussed if, if we never actually make it to Pops of Peace. I'm, I might just make this as a, a bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just having too, uh, uh, too, too, too much fun doing this. But I, I was so tentative about approaching the 80s. Like I was like, you know what, Tug of War is going to be fine because it's the post-Lennon Death album and, and, and everyone loves it. And, you know, McCartney 2 doesn't really count as an 80s album. It was recorded in 79. Uh, Pirates of Peace has a, a a really dorky, lame charm to it that I just can't get can't get past. Um, I thought you liked Pipes of Peace. Oh yeah, I do. I like it, but it's objectively not very good. Uh, I like it. Dis- it's not. I, I hate the phrase "guilty pleasure" because I am not guilty of anything. <laughs> I just I, I hate that phrase too. Yeah. You should never feel guilty about anything that you like. But I I I know that. I don't ever want to be caught in public singing so bad or sweetest little show. You know what I mean? It's definitely not Paul's coolest album. Uh, Paul doing that kind of lovey dovey thing is what the album is. But I'm I'm getting off point. The uh, I was very tentative about the eighties, and well, it kind kind of even with Pipes of Peace, you start really hearing the eighties, and I was like, oh god, here it comes. And then when he when he moves on to press to play, I know he gets a different producer for that album. It gets very eighties very quickly, and I was like, "Oh God!" It feels like a Duran Duran James Bond song here. And after I kind of processed it a bit, I'm having to look past "Move Over Busker" and "Angry" at the moment because those songs are, are borderline laughable to me at the moment. I'm I'm very unhappy with those at the moment. Um, <laughs> but footprints. That's up there with every other generic McCartney single acoustic number for an album type song. That's a beautiful track. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no idea what that instrument is in it, you know? Um, it's one of the uh, kind of little musical solos, and it's towards the kind of... Yeah. T- it goes... Jung, 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 yeah. jung, I have no idea what that is, and I'm always so enraptured whenever I hear that sound. It's so beautiful. We've talked more about Press the Play on this, but... Um, but you know, it, since since we're bringing this up, because mm. this is a very important part of my opinions about mm. music in general, mm. if you don't mind my elaborating here. Yeah, carry on. I'm not someone, I'm always hearing certain phrases like, held up, certain music is held up, or certain music hasn't aged well, or something like that. And I, I, I just don't understand this hatred that a lot of fans, especially Beatle fans, have towards the 80s. I've never hated the 80s. I've never hated the synthesizers and the heavy drum sounds. And to me, it doesn't sound dated at all because I've never stopped listening to that music. It's never left me. The same way that I still love disco music of the late 70s. Mm. Some people can't stand it. You know, I could listen to the Bee Gees right now with Night Fever and feel like it just came out yesterday. I could listen to Tears for Fears. Everybody wants to rule Mm. the world. 
and I'll feel like it just came out yesterday. It doesn't sound dated to me in the least. And yet I am stunned. I must have been living in a bubble because <laughs> for years I hung around people. I, I went to, to college in the 80s and we were at the radio station and all, every, all the DJs there, all the students loved that music. Mm. But a lot of the people who are Beatle fans in particular, who really love the 60s and the 70s, just totally hated the 80s. And I just don't understand this. You know, I, I, I just don't get it. But to me, when somebody says that a certain style is dated, I don't relate to that at all. I can listen to Pretty Little Head right now and feel like it's brand new. It feels so brand new, though. It does feel like a very contemporary song, that. Because that, when, like, I've had the benefit of the format of this podcast the idea that i'm a young guy in 20 whatever going back through the catalogue right. i'm not a completionist i have not even looked at off the ground don't know what songs are on it i don't know that's part that's part mm. of the show and i'm discovering the music a lot of my song polls on the twitter are forcing me to check out songs uh, like uh, i i i uh, you know, when you sneak ahead in like a, a book in a chap a, a chapter in a book or something, I checked out uh, "Friends <laughs> to Go" from uh, uh, Chaos and Creation. I was like, "Damn, that's a good song. Damn, I can't forget about that. That's going to change my review now. I've I've studied the uh, the integrity of of this show." But the the fact that I get to look at all this music without having to care that oh, Paul announced the breakup of the Beatles. That means Ram is bad. Like I don't I don't uh -huh. have to worry about all that shit. And, you know, whilst I'm not going to be kind to move over Busker, spoiler alerts, folks, I'm not going to be kind kind to that song. It's absolute tripe. But, you know, I'm so glad that I could just be, you know, I, I just put on my vinyl. I bought the press to play. I was like, oh, well, I found it for £4, like that, $7 in a, in a, in a second-hand shop. Oh, I'll just pop, pop this on. And then just that do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. I was like, this sounds so contemporary. Paul, you've done it again, you... I never think it's him looking forward. I don't think it's like him being Bowie predicting the internet and Jim Morrison predicting electronic music. It's just that I think he's so timeless that it's both looking forward and backwards at the same time in that kind of perfect way. Wouldn't it be great if we approached every single album from every artist without knowing the history behind it? It's just a new piece of music to you. You're going in, you're listening without any knowledge about anything else, just going blind and then and then evaluate the music yourself. Oh, without without any prejudices. Get that know, thing from Men, from, from Men in Black and sit down with Pepper for the first time again. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> People would pay for that. Pay to listen to the Beatles for the for the first time again. Hmm. Just just get to hear that one, two, three, four, one, three, four. <clears throat> ah, ah, ah. To hear that again for the for the first time, it it'd be nice to know if I'd wet myself again at twenty seven. You know, it'd be it'd, mm. be it'd be nice to know that. Um, it is so hard to be a Beatle fan and not have this bucket load of context to everything, though. You know, looking both forwards and backwards, and is Honey Pie any good or is it actually rubbish when compared to other McCartney granny songs he'd do late, later on in time? Or can I just enjoy Honey Pie for what it is on the White Album as this little kind of palate cleanser on, you know, between quite serious songs? And why must everything be a comparison anyway? Oh, because it... Because we have to make content, Ken! We have to make content <laughs> to, make, to, make, to make money because we can't work in an office. We can't work in an office. No. 
So now that a lot of people have determined that Revolver is the best Beatles album of all time and that Sergeant Rubber Pepper Soul's has coming it, round, Ken. Well, it's going to be Rubber Soul in five wait, years. Wait. I'm telling you, mate. I've said it. I call wait, it now. Wait. Now that, you know, some people think that Sergeant Pepper sounds dated and Revolver still sounds fresh, does that mean I can't listen to Sergeant Pepper anymore and appreciate it? You know, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> These are all, you know, people's opinions change over time. You have to expect that. But it doesn't affect my appreciation for the music. Mm. So when people say that certain music hasn't held up or that certain music sounds dated, you know, there's a lot of people. One of the most important shows I ever did was on another podcast that I was in a long time mm. ago. Um, and the topic was, it always kind of bothered me that every single time the Beatles reappeared on the charts, whenever there was some kind of revival because some new release came out, it was always their later albums that made the charts. You know, Sgt. Pepper, The White Album, Abbey Road. You'd never even see Revolver, despite all the, the you know, the praise that Revolver gets today. Um, but everything from Please Please Me through Revolver doesn't re-enter the charts. Okay, and I asked that question to our listeners, and a lot of people emailed me, and they said, because the early Beatles music sounds dated. But, oh, oh that's such a limited... It's like putting blinders on musically. Well, it's the same thing with looking at 80s music and saying it sounds dated it doesn't have any effect on me personally mm -hmm. you know i still love the early beatles stuff i still love the 80s i still love press to play i still love disco you know i'm not going to let when people say to me that certain music hasn't aged well or sounds dated affect how i think oh definitely it. not because like to me a night on disco mountain sounds like it came out yesterday i fucking love that song that's one of the best tunes i think i've ever heard from a movie soundtrack same with the the fifth of Beethoven from the same album as as well. Actually, I've I've had a big binge of Saturday Night Fever recently. Actually, cool. Like I always get laughed at. I always I, I try and grab my friends by the shoulders. I'm like, please watch Saturday Night Fever. It's it's up there with like Goodfellas and Jurassic Park. It's really fucking good. And they just laugh at me and walk away like I'm trying to get them to watch Give My Regards to Broad Street or something. <laughs> no. You know, you know something. I, I've actually found uh, uh, it's like a new respect for Give My Regards to Broad Street. Oh, music. that's what we'll have to get get you back on for then. Oh, why don't we just do each McCartney album one by one and have you? Oh. <laughs> oh. But anyway, since 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 I drifted off the subject, just to finish one thought there mm. about Wings. Oh, on the radio. You heard all these other songs that were not a McCartney vocal. Yeah, and I even remember when I when I went to the Wings Over America tour at Madison Square Garden. Lucky bastard. Time to Hide. Time to Hide was a big moment in the, the show. The crowd go wild. That was, yeah, yeah, you're right. So Wings wasn't just Paul McCartney and backing musicians, as a lot of fans now think, especially younger fans who didn't live through it. Hmm. You know, this is why we did this show recently on Talk More Talk, it was part, was Wings a real band? And also, does Wings belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Which is two separate things. Because which which, which one do you put in? Oh, that's so difficult. But that doesn't bother me either, because there's lots of bands like Fleetwood Mac that have had a lot of different changes in the personnel through the years. And some of them made it into the Hall of Fame, some of them didn't. You know, what do you do with, um, I don't know, Santana, for example? You know, it's there are bands that have many different personnel changes through the years. And I think overall, as much as I love the fourth and fifth members that changed in Wings, the core of Wings is Paul, Linda, and Denny. 
The thing is, do you separate Wings from the rest of Paul's solo catalog? Is it all the same thing to you? Is it all Paul, no matter how you look at it? Or was Wings really a separate entity in Paul's career? And I think of it as something separate. Even though it's all part of one family tree, hmm. it's still a separate thing. Because I think Denny Lane was a very big influence in, in the sound of Wings, as was Linda. And I think all the different members brought something to the band. And Paul wanted Wings to be established as a band. But anyway, we, we just keep drifting off, don't we? <laughs> yeah, honestly, the Linda, Denny, and Paul harmony is it's yep. unreplicatable. Like, that's probably why a lot of Wing stuff doesn't get touched, because they just cannot recreate that atonal, terrible singing that Linda adds to that trio that somehow, despite all logical sense, allows the music to transcend. And the vocals are so beautiful in Wings, like... No words for my love. Like I'm sure, if you isolate Linda's track on there, it would be it would be laughable. But it's so natural when she mixes with Paul because, like, you see all the footage of them on the farms in Scotland and they're singing like bit bop and hey diddle to each other. And he's literally teaching her to be a member of Wings, kind of subconsciously. And through that, her voice so naturally became intertwined with Paul's that like she can never be a backing singer in any other group other than a group that Paul McCartney's in. And that is one of the really adorable things about Wings that I've always been helpless to resist, you know. Well, no, nobody would call her a great singer, but those harmonies made a huge difference. And it really rounded out the sound of Wings. And, you know, it made it a much fuller sound. Yeah, like... Um, and, and there was much more Linda yeah. McCartney presence in Wings than there was in Paul solo stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, just, I mean, just going back to the Beatles, look at, like, Ringo in Flying or in Carry That Weight. Sure. Boom! You've got a much richer sound, a much bigger sound, a much more expansive just vocal range. And it adds just this little layer of magic that, that the George, John and Paul trio doesn't quite get in Save Because, even though Because is one of the best songs. But actually, I might be controversial saying it might be my favourite song on the album. That might be a bit controversial, but yeah, I love the uh, Linda Denny trio. What do you think of the Eric Stewart uh, kind of trio of harmonies from, say, Tug through to Press? I like them. I th- when I think of Eric Stewart, I think more of the, the songwriting collaboration, which I loved on Press to Play. And I, I really thought it was a crime that they didn't work together after Press to Play. Mm. Because, you know, some of those songs on, on that album are just amazing that they wrote together. Like Footprints, for example, or Stranglehold. Pretty Little Head, I think, was the two of them together. Uh, Tough on a Tightrope was an amazing song that, you know, just a bonus track on the cd i wish that those two had worked together more but then who knows if they continued there you you might not have gotten elvis costello with paul but um harmonies yeah he's he's a he's a great harmonizer from his work with 10cc but you know i don't know if i necessarily would would hear a song and say wow eric stewart must be on it mm-hmm. i totally and i totally get that and that's what i'm feeling in when, when i've been write, writing my notes for this episode that we're kind of not doing now <laughs> But it it does seem that like Paul was always desperate to find this. It's always so easy to say oh, he was looking for another Lennon, but it's not that. It's just looking for someone to really bounce ideas off. And Denny was a good idea, just a guy to bounce ideas off. You don't really see much of Denny's fingerprints on a lot of the songs, but 
you definitely can tell the difference between a Wings track and just the way the the guitars are layered and how everyone has to be involved in a in a different way than say a, a Paul McCartney song can just be him on piano for three minutes and not have anyone else involved. If it's a Wings song, you know you can bet Denny Sywell's coming in at the minute mark. He's not just going to sit there, and mm. and Henry McCullough is not just going to sit there for three minutes while Paul does this while Paul does do it now or something like that. For example, you mm. know. By the way, I love Do It Now. It's one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love the voice. I love the uh, frail McCartney old old man voice, uh, especially when compared to him doing the old man come to uh, come on to me kind of shtick earlier. Uh-huh. but now Do It Now has got a great melody to it, and the fact that it's you know another song like Put It There, which was a tribute to his father. The only song from from Edith Station that I don't care for is People Want Peace. Oh, really? Oh, okay. See, a funny, funny story about that. I was really uh, much like, I'm going to buy the vinyl. I'm not going to be a, a millennial. I'm not going to be a modern man. I'm going to buy the vinyl and listen to it on my record player. Didn't happen. Uh, halfway to buying the vinyl, uh, I put it on. And on Spotify, you select the first song, but I didn't know that I'd selected Shuffle after that. So I'd listen to uh-huh. Opening Station, same as everyone else. I'm like, oh, okay, this wonderful palate cleanser. Oh, oh, this is really cool. And then it goes to... Yeah. I was like, oh, wow, this is actually a really great intro for this album. Uh, and yeah. the actual, like, him saying, like, ladies and gentlemen, blah, 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 you know, this is him, like, doing... It almost felt like a thesis statement for Egypt Station. And once I found out that... It was, I don't know, that opened the album. I was just never able to look at it in a, in another way. I kind of ruined it for, my, for myself. Like You know, you got used to it as, as yeah. People Want oh, Peace being the beginning. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's better. Move People Want Peace up to number to number two and keep everything else in the, in the exact same order. I feel like it works much better. A lot of people feel like Come On To Me probably should have started the album. I agree. You know, I don't understand starting an album out with a slow song, but then again, look at London Town, you know, or look at Tug of War for that matter. Um, but I don't know is is a brilliant song. I just don't know if I would lead off the album with that. So, oh, I can't I can't get over just how easy it was to do an impression of Paul singing from that song. I got crows at my window, dogs at my door. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It sounds. It sounds like uh, um, what's the line from Once Upon a Long Ago? You know, picking up scales and broken chords. You know, puppy dog tales from the House of Lords. <laughs> it's like to start a uh, song with lyrics like those. You know? Oh well, I mean, one of the subjects we we we, we had to discuss today, um, even if we're not going to do it a proper song by song, the dustbin lid line. I know what I was a crazy fool for treating you the way I did. But something took a hold of me, and I acted like a dustbin lid. Oh. I, I've already kind of covered this in my top twenty worst Paul McCartney rhyming couplets episode, which is co- which is unique content that not even the Nothing Is Real podcast would have thought of doing. Um, but is this the single worst lyric in Paul McCartney's entire discography? Oh, Sam. <laughs> It's so funny that you're bringing this up because 
I just keep bouncing back and forth with my different podcast shows. We just did a show on things we said today, and the theme was um, we each pick a solo album that we appreciate more now than when it first came out. And the album that I picked was Driving Rain. Okay. And then, and then um, you know, Alan was saying to me, I just can't get past the one, two, three, four, five, let's go for a drive line, <laughs> which I said, I said to him, you know, if you could accept one, two, three, four, can I have a little more? Five, six, you know, what's the difference anyway? But, uh, you know, he just felt that Paul could have put more effort behind the lyrics, which I agree with, but I don't, I, I don't, it doesn't bother me a line like that. But yet I, I use an example of one of the worst ex, uh, times when I think that Paul really should have worked on the lyrics is in uh, Feet in the Clouds, where he's singing, I find it. Very, 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 very hard. So he says very, says very like I don't know, eight, ten times, something like that. And, and worse, worse yet, he repeats it. And it's even more excruciating to me because I like everything else about that song, and then he ruins it with that. So I don't think the dustbin lid line is that bad because it's supposed to be a British expression. Oh, it's, which means oh. something like like crazy kid or something like that. So once you understand that, that's fine. There are lines that Paul has done throughout his solo career that I don't fully understand why he said it. Like Oklahoma was never like this. But what what is Oklahoma? What is he talking about? The state of Oklahoma was never like this. The musical Oklahoma was never like this. I don't understand what what that means. It must mean something in his mind. Or uh, say you don't love him, my salamander. Oh, I can't know yet. Yeah, yeah, that is the hill that I'll die on. I cannot get past that that one either. Mm. Maybe that's a nickname for Linda. I don't know. <laughs> oh, Linda, you wonderfully slimy toad creature. Uh, <laughs> she's my baby, like gravy down to the last drop. I keep mopping her up. Yeah, yeah, she's mm. my baby. Christ, Paul. Like I'm <laughs> sure Linda loved being compared to meat broth. <laughs> and <laughs> and you mop something up with bread as as well, and that, that that's not very vegan, Paul. You know, the other bad one, uh, my friend Morris, who who I had on for my London Town episode, he couldn't he could not get past I'm carrying, because it's I'm carrying something for you, and it's he just said it was one of the biggest cop outs ever. Like it was built into to something, and then nothing he just goes nowhere with it in a proper teddy boy fashion i don't know reading too much into that maybe he wants you to guess what he's carrying is it a version of london town that doesn't have a terrible first side there i said it folks i said it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know you know when it comes to the solo beatles not just paul i like most of it i'm not going to say i like every single song Mm -hmm. but you know um you know beatles Beatles as a group, all the songs go from good to great. Most of the solo music goes from good to great, but there's a few clunkers. That's how I look at it. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm really not looking forward to doing Give My Regards to Broad Street. I think that's why I'm doing a lot more bonus episodes. I think I'm trying to forestall it a bit. You know, do I do Give My Regards to Broad Street or do I do that Simpsons episode of Paul that I've always wanted to do? You, you know, I can, I can, I can easily just justify that. But then on the other end, I'll have times where it's like, oh, I want to get through back to the egg so I can talk about McCartney too, you know? Mm. Right, let's take a step back, and it's important for context. 
How big was Tug of War when it when it came out? Did it destroy the post the the kind of seventies Beatles malaise the the Beatles kind of exhaustion that the public had? You know, did it did it revive everything in the way that the literature points out? I think it was big, but it wasn't massively big. I think people were waiting to hear what Paul had to say after John died. I think that there was massive airplay of John Lennon and Beatles right after John died. And I think eventually the public got a little bit tired of it. And by by the mid-80s, I sensed that at the time being being on the air, well, I've been on the air you know, ever since then, that there was less interest in the Beatles once you got past the like the mid eighties on and then it didn't pick up again till live at the BBC and the Beatles anthology. But uh Tug of War um was big to some degree because of Ebony and Ivory <laughs> for the most part. Oh, no. Really? I mean Ebony and Ivory was, was was number one for seven weeks. Seven weeks in America. And then Take It Away was a number ten hit. And I kinda wish that you know, the right choices were made for singles because still Paul had a chance of having more hits. He was still getting airplay on Top 40 Radio back then. I kind of wish Ballroom Dancing was made into a single. Definitely, definitely. A shorter version, though. I think maybe you take out the the uh, musical breakdown in the middle, just take that out and make it like three minutes solid rather than like four minutes 20 or whatever it is. Hmm. You know, because the third single from Tug of War was the title track, which I could have never seen as being a hit. It's a great song, but I couldn't see Top 40 Radio playing the song Tug of War. Never. And I've really grown to love Take It Away so much more now than I did when it first came out. It's not that I disliked Take It Away. It's just that I liked Ballroom Dancing so much more than Take It Away. And I was really pushing for Ballroom Dancing to be a single. But, you know, Here Today got a lot of attention since it was, you know, the tribute to John, but most of it, most of the success came from the fact that people wanted to know, people wanted to hear what Paul would give us after John's death. I think a lot of attention was given to that, and the fact that Ebony and Ivory came out, and it was two of the greatest artists of all time together on the same record, and I happen to love that song. Mm. It's, uh, I know that it's maligned these days, I wish it wasn't. Come on, you co- it's not as good as What's That You're Doing, though. Again, I know that's not a very commercial song by any means, but I'd love it if that song was the household name rather than Ebony and Ivory. Like, it's the, it's the exact opposite of Pipes of Peace, you know? Like, with Pipes of Peace, yes, they did pick the more commercial song, but they picked the better song, at least that time, with uh, Say, Say, Say. Like, the mm. man. The, uh, no one cares that the man has been forgotten to time. No one cares. McCartney fans don't care. J- Jackson fans don't care. Um, and I do. Oh, really? Like that? Yeah. You could have chucked it on off the wall, and and I, I I I wouldn't I wouldn't be fussed. Just chuck it on off the wall, and uh, and have another McCartney collaboration. I really love the collaborations between Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson, and I know that it's unfashionable these days because a lot of people make fun of that time. And, and look at it possibly as the nadir of Paul's career. I don't think of it that way. And also, a lot of people think that it was Paul trying to, you know, be hip again by associating with somebody like Michael Jackson. When, in fact, it was Michael that approached him. Can we make some hits, Paul? Can we make some yeah. hits? 
but I, I the, the ultimate thing for me is how was the music and uh between stevie wonder and michael jackson paul sounded great with both of them harmonically they sounded fantastic um the one thing i love about the man even though it's a syrupy song is that it's great harmony work on that song. It really is. It's a wonderful melody. You know, I think that if that song had been released as a single, and I've always heard that it, they decided not to release it, it was going to be the third single. Hmm. And I because haven't of, found that. Okay. Yeah, and um, supposedly because Paul got busted at that time in Barbados, I think it was, they pulled the single because they didn't want Michael Jackson to be associated with Paul at the moment. It might be bad for his image. I don't know mm. if I buy that, really. But, um, yeah, I think the man could have been a top ten hit. I don't know if it would have been a number one hit. But um, it's great melody, great orchestration from George Martin. It really is a little too cutesy for a lot of people. But I think um, ultimately, because the two of them sounded so good together vocally, I really wish that they had made a whole album together. Yes. But also, I also want him to do a whole album with Kanye West. So don't listen to everything I say. <laughs> also, uh, Kanye should definitely produce McCartney's next album. I think that would break the internet. I think that would be an absolutely massive uh, re revelation. Because Kanye is not, the, he's not a particularly strong lyricist. Uh, he's not a particularly good rapper when compared to a lot of other uh, of his contemporaries. But he's an amazing producer. I love All Day. I love Only One. Huh. Okay. Only One I liked a lot. And four or five seconds. I preferred the version McCartney does on his own, if I'm honest. When I saw him live in December, he did Only One. And it, it's just more fun. And it's kind of kitsch seeing him doing the Kanye West lines as well. And just... You know, picturing in my head him doing it with the same kind of ha! intonations. <laughs> you know, I, I I think that his his voice was so raspy though. Doing it, it was all, almost like he couldn't hit the notes for it. Oh, so. ah, sick. Come on, you, yeah. can, you can do it, Paul. Come on, <laughs> Abe's not here to do the backings this time. <laughs> oh. But uh, I'm glad that he's he did it live because. It's really interesting that in the in this tour he brought back in spite of all the danger. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah. He goes all the way back to a song that that the Quarry Men did in nineteen fifty eight and he takes you all the way to the present with four or five seconds. So I love the fact that he did that in the same show. So it encompasses everything. Although, like we just said, I, I think his concerts are way too Beatle heavy. Oh, a hundred percent. Even if he does something cool like being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, like, you get a pass for that, Paul. That's a Lenin song that you're, you know, doing in a really cool way. You can have that. But I'd love a tour called the I'm Not Doing Let It Be and Hey Jude tour. Okay, Paul gets some intern at MPL to make a list of every song you've ever played in every concert, or at least in the last, say, 10 years. Find all the top 20 ones and just cut them. I don't want to see Let Me Roll It Again. I don't want to see it, Paul. Mm. Yep. Get 1985 out of there. These are Wings tracks that I don't want to see again, you know? Well, 1985, he only started doing in this past decade. It's not, let me roll it. He's been doing constantly since, since Wings Over America. It's like, yeah, you do look pretty cool, Paul, okay? 
you know that. You know, there there are certain songs like I'm glad that he's not doing Jet lately. You know. Oh, I'm so glad I didn't I didn't see Jet. Oh, it would have ruined my evening. It would have ruined my evening. <laughs> but uh, Jet, he's done it almost every tour, and he's he's brought back Junior's Farm, which makes me happy. Although mm-hmm. he doesn't do the full version of it. No, but um, you know, Junior's Farm is a cool is a cool rocker. I love that song. He doesn't get to say "Take me away, Jimmy" either, which is <laughs> you know I. I love little noises in songs like that. You know, play one time for me, George for Ringo one time. You know, I love stuff like that. He should do "Take Me Down," Rusty. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Rusty Anderson. What? See, I I always remember the four of them: Wixie Wickens, we got Abe, Rusty Anderson, Brian um, Ray. Brian Ray, thank you. I all. Yep. I don't. I'm so, Brian. If you're listening to this, because obviously you are. Obviously, you're one of my eight fans. <laughs> I'm very sorry for that, Brian. So yeah, Tug of War comes out. It's big, not massive. Then Pipes of Peace comes out. Was it really the shock of horror? Oh my God, this is instantly not as good as Tug of War. Why does everything have to be a comparison? I know. But was that the kind of air at the time you know obviously this is in your early days of radio as well did you get to give this album a lot of play time was it requested at all or well anything that's new gets a lot of requests usually Mm -hmm. and at that time a lot of the fans that listened to my Beatles show because it does date all the way back um they were into the new releases i can't say it's that way today with my when i do my my regular music show on the Beatles, every little thing I don't get a lot of requests for the new stuff, but back then, in 1982 and 1983, yes, yes, hmm. I did. But it's an ironic thing about Pipes of Peace. It was the first McCartney album, music album, that failed to make the top ten Oof. in America. Um, and that coming off Tug of War, which actually went to number one, hmm. which is very strange. However, it still went platinum. Pipes of Peace still went platinum in America. Um, and I think a lot of that was due to the fact that it had Say, Say, Say on it. And uh, although there may have been some confusion with Michael Jackson fans, maybe they would find it on Michael's album. But, um, yeah, I, I think overall it was considered a disappointment. It didn't have a strong follow-up single to Say, Say, Say. No. And it's, it's a fascinating thing for me. And in the case of Pipes of Peace... That was the song. The title track was the song that became the next hit in your country and went to number one there. And then over here in America, they played the flip side, which was so bad, which only went to number 23. (laughs) And um, I wouldn't have picked so bad as a single myself. You can't do a song with that title. Like, have they not watched the Muppets with Waldorf and Sadler? Oh, I know why they call this song so bad. Why? Because it's so bad. It's just one of those... Uh, same with average person. Well, it's a very average song, Paul. But um, oh, he's he he always leaves himself open open for these for these ones. But for me, the, the real jewel on this album is through our love. Oh, well done. I'm so glad you've said that. It is a song that is so inexplicably linked with my life. I, I couldn't imagine life without through our love. It's uh-huh. so, it's it's classic. You know when it's a certain piano chord that he'll just play. And your third lizard eye, pineal gland brain goes, oh, classic McCartney, we're fine. We're fine. Uh-huh. You know when you first hear, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, or you hear, 
Beware My Love or something. Like, oh, okay, smooth sailing from mm-hmm. here. And I just got that feeling, and it was bliss from then on. Like, I've been on so many train journeys where I've looked out the window and popped on through our love. And it could be the most horribly industrial wasteland of grey and tarmac and Thatcherite architecture. And you put on through our love and suddenly, you know, you feel this uplifting quality and life just feels amazing. It's like it's like the Wizard of Oz turning to colour. Yeah, because we've, <laughs> we've had this album of silly love songs and kind of poppy love songs and really gushy, gooey love songs, like so bad. And then at the end, he kind of comes in with the maybe I'm amazed of pipes of peace, like a serious love song. Like, serious! You know? mm. And it's definitely the Linda love song, I feel, of the album. Like, there only ever really feels like there's one proper Linda song per album. A lot of them all seem to be about her or about love in general. But you can always tell which one has the most forethought before it. And through, and through, uh-huh. like, I'm not even sure if Through Our Love was brought over from the Tug of War sessions. I don't think it was. That was one of the newer yeah. songs. Because it's strange that um, Pipes of Peace was so late in the production as well. Because that obviously means, and this is something that I wanted to bring up if, we did, if, if, if I stuck to my format, uh, was how if Pipes of Peace was so late, then that obviously means Tug of Peace was really late in the production. And then that must mean that the concept of Pipes of Peace must have been really made up on the fly. Because we see loads of footage of like Paul and George uh, Martin working out the Pipes of Peace sessions, you know, and they're, and they're working it out. But it's only ever footage of stuff like Keep Undercover or Sweet's Little Show, something like that. And you've got to wonder, how late into the production did someone go, oh, maybe it'd be good, like, th- these are mostly love songs and the, the, the last one was called Tug of War, so we'll call this one Pipes of Peace and it'll be like a, a flip side, you know? I'd be interested to know at what point it became Pipes of Peace, the flip side, the yin-yang of Tug of War, and not just the next McCartney project. Well, actually, uh, the album, Pipes of Peace originally was going to be called Tug of War 2. What? What? Are you, are you kidding me, Ken? <laughs> it was going to... What? That's, that's the worst title I've ever heard of. Oh. How have I not found that? But actually... You asked the question, first of all, as far as Tug of Peace, that was another one of the later tracks. There are five songs that I know of that were later recorded, that were newer for this album. There was Pipes of Peace, Through Our Love is one of them, Tug of Peace, So Bad was another, and The Other Me. Those were newer songs. And from what I've read, there's an author from the UK by the name of George Melly, Mm -hmm. who asked Paul to write a song for children about global peace. And that led to him writing Pipes of Peace. Mm. So all of a sudden it became, hey, why not call the album Pipes of Peace? And this will be like a lighter version of Tug of War. Because certain songs like Average Person, you mentioned, was originally slated for Tug of War. In fact, uh, a number of sources that I've read said that it was going to be the second track after Tug of War instead of Take It Away, Ooh, which I could kind of hear in a way. Um, I mean, I'm working on... Uh, I mean, I did an article for it for the blog ages ago, but the the War and Peace concept album for McCartney fans is up there with, like, the Green album for Beatle fans, you know? Like, the in these kind of hypothetical what-if albums, uh, something like the, uh-huh. uh, the Red Rose Speedway double album might actually be a better right. example. But doing... Um, 
I think doing a double album of all the tug of war and pods of peace stuff is is a much more boring exercise than cutting it down to a single disc, you know? Which is hard to do. Oh, it's um, oh, it, you you have to like it. It's some of it is like Sophie's Choice levels of like, oh my god, am I giving up ballroom dancing or am I giving up through our love? Both of these can't be on the you know track eight, and you know it's really hard to do. I don't. There's a few songs I could dispose of, but uh, you know I, all the songs on both albums. I'm glad that we have. I mean, I don't know if you really need be what you see, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's more a bridge going into dress me up as a robber oh it, no, but it's it's such a good bridge as well because it just cutting straight to that right. like that's up there with the cut from so bad to um the man as well the way the man uh, so bad just peters out and then you just cut to i love those those movements that paul does it's it always uh, reminds me of like the way they went from Revolution Nine to Good Night. I, uh-huh. I always, I always just love it when Paul thinks of like, oh, let's just pick the, the two songs that really shouldn't go next to each other and put them right together. I always love it when he, when he, when he does that. Mm. Well, if this is more like you know, everybody on this planet that's a Beatle fan has assembled their single White Album. You know, which is almost impossible. Which is impossible. You know, there's nothing that I would take off. Maybe Wild Honey Pie. (laughs) I don't know. But uh, uh, it's there's only a few songs maybe between the two albums that I could do without. But uh, I'll tell you this. The problem with a single white album is that disc one side one of the two disc edition is just perfect on its own. Except for maybe like Glass Onion and the continuous story of Bungalow Bill, but like y- you know, just that run of just opening with "Back in the USSR" into "Dear Prudence" is never going to change. That's always yeah. going to be in everyone's. The fact that they seg the way they do, yeah, it's like your brain thinks that no matter what. But plus, I'm I'm a Paul McCartney guy, so I'm just drawn to the drumming, obviously. In a way, you could say the same thing about "Tug of War" going into "Take It Away." Hmm. Yeah, it is hard to, to uh, do that. I, I, I was actually playing around with um, Sweetest Little Show's got a nice fade out. The way oh. it goes, ah. And I tried just today, because uh, with Spotify you can do crossfades and try it on different settings with different seconds. And uh, crossfading Sweetest Little Show into Take It Away was quite fun. Mm. Just like, okay. ah. And then just going to the, into that. It's like, oh, okay, right. you know, it's it it's 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 very fun trying to create a War and Peace album because on both releases there are songs where you're like, right, this should be on Pops of Peace and that should have been on Tug of War. I mean, uh, <laughs> keep, keep Undercover is it's, it's far too dramatic for Pops of Peace. Like, you know, Pipes of Peace is an album for people with heart conditions, <laughs> and I feel like. You know, keep keep on the cover. It's like ah, you know, people just clutching their chest. Like, whoa, where did that come from? Especially since it starts with just love. I'm gonna take you out in the morning. You're like, oh, okay. Mm. You know, this is kind of cute. Whoa, George Martin, you've just killed eighty pensioners there. Oh, calm down. Reminded me of Eleanor Rigby there with those strings. You know what? That's actually not not a bad comparison actually, because the string section on all of Pipes of Peace is just solid. 
could be quite a controversial opinion. I think in terms of saving an album, in terms of doing the best with the material you're given, George Martin does a better job with Pops of Peace than he did with Tug of War, because Tug of War had the better material to work with in the first place, if you know what I mean. Like, hmm. George, George Martin... That's tough to say. I mean, the, the orchestration on the song Tug of War, the brass on Ballroom Dancing and Wanderlust, come on. <laughs> I mean, he did a tremendous job there, and of course here today. You know, I don't but know. they're good songs, so they, so giving them brilliant production is is. I'm not saying it's standard, but it just feels more natural. Whereas with something, especially like a sweetest little show or mm. um, average person, is is an example of one of the oh, few yeah. times when I would ever say something is overproduced. I think okay. he really went 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 overboard with average person, which. One of the few songs I'm actually starting to like now. <laughs> Average Person is a song that a lot of people that I talk to, even in my podcast, say to me that McCartney has this knack for writing these catchy earworms that you can't get out of your head, even if you don't like the song. Well, I'm talking to a former engine driver. Driver! Yeah. Da, 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 yeah. da. It's like, get out of my head, Paul. Get out of my head. <laughs> I can't get average person out of my head after I listen to it. And, but there is an, but then I, I, I also believe that there's a thin line between love and hate. So if the, if a song, if a song is stuck yeah. in your head to some degree, you must like it. It's like when we did things we said today and one of our older, uh, co-hosts, Al Sussman was on. I don't know if you listened back then, he would say how much he can't stand wonderful Christmas time. Because once once he hears that song, he can't get it out of his head. Well, you know, that's the sign of a song that is effective. You know, if you have it in your head, if you can't get it out of there, then that must mean that you like it somewhat. It's, a, it's, like, it's like a self-loathing fan, is, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know? yeah. so, like, um, I, I hated Come On To Me when it came out. But... I'm completely tone deaf, so the only time I ever get to sing is on my bike ride to work and back, because I'm completely on my own for like 40 minutes. And every time I'd get on my bike, and I'd turn uh -huh. that corner down the country lane, I saw you flash a smile, that seemed to me... I'm like, damn it, it's in my head again! And you've got, yeah. to, and you've got to play the whole song now, and then, because of that, uh -huh. I actually started to appreciate it a whole lot more as well, like, especially like the, the brass at the end, and Paul doing that, yeah, yeah! Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, oh, Paul, please go back with Savannah. Do more of that. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think the brass make a big difference in that song. Oh, yeah. Greg Kirsten fucking knocked that album out the park. It's mm. Like, yeah, I love I love the, the Ryan Tedder stuff, and that could have been a fun little EP if you wanted it to be. Let me give you a hug. <laughs> You know, for all the people that I know that ha have knocked for you, I love for song, you. It's great. I, I, you know, I didn't like the gimmickry of it. You know, in the very beginning, because of what you thought Paul said, and that got a lot of attention. But I still like the song itself, and I love the hook in it and the melody. But most of all, I like nothing for free. I mean, what <gasps> a song! But oh, it is the best Paul McCartney song of nineteen ninety-seven. You know, you know what I mean. It's, it's that hook of "I know you need something." It it sounds like kind of like a 
I don't know, maybe like early 2000s, like gorillas type hook, you know, it feels really, there are so many times with Paul where he'll do something that is not Paul McCartney and it just feels so natural and right. I'm, I'm one of the few people that didn't completely hate Get Enough. I particularly like the harmonies in that, like, I can't get enough of you. I, I love that kind of silly McCartney stuff. And when he's doing the experimental shit, I'm always going to be more drawn towards that. And I think that's why I've got a soft spot for the Tedder stuff. I think Paul uh-huh. was like, I know that I've got this Egypt station thing pretty much in the bag, but let's just do some weird stuff with this with this yeah. random guy, you know? Let's see what happens. Do the same again with Kanye, though, Paul, please. Could you imagine nothing for free done by Kanye West? It'd be insane. It'd be an insane song. Not that anyone on this podcast who's actually listening to this podcast would actually probably enjoy that. It would just be good content for me, for me personally. <laughs> but you see, there you have the dividing line between fans who want Paul to do more of the traditional stuff that we've come to know him for. Instead fireman! Of do the fireman with... again! Again! Yeah. <laughs> actually, you know, the fireman is very well received amongst Beatles fans. But still, something like Press to Play... People are very divided on something like that or, or driving rain when you're when you're dealing with songs that have the electronic sound to it, like she's given up talking, something like that, or maybe tiny bubble, uh, you know, songs on driving rain like that. Or in the case of press to play, talk more talk or pretty little head. There are there are fans who just why are you doing that? Why are you trying to sound contemporary? And you can say the exact same thing now with for you. Or get enough, or nothing for free. It's it's never changed. There are fans out there that want more of the same, who don't want to adapt to changes in the music industry, and you know it's it's that mentality that a lot of older people have that you know today's music sucks. You know, which I I will never I, you know it's it's um there's a certain amount of ignorance when people think that way because m- most of those people don't realize that. Uh, there's a lot of music out there to listen to. It isn't just what's on Top 40 radio. And you're not the same person at the age of 50 that you were when you were 15 listening to this stuff. Oh, so, course, yeah. You really never know what you're going to get with the next album. I've recently become a real fan of the Twin Freaks release. That's oh, yeah. insanely good. I was like, oh, wow, Paul. This is one of your best albums in your entire oeuvre. This is brilliant. I'm so, and it's not on Spotify for some reason. Spotify's removed it, so I don't know if that that means there's like some sort of archive release imminent or something. Right. I don't, I don't know, or maybe just like a, a rights ish issue. But some of the re, uh, re, reinventions on that album were astounding. I don't know which tour it was for, but I think he used some of that stuff as like a little intro show at the start of one of the tours. I think he did it for Glastonbury as well. Yeah, I don't remember going back to Twin Freaks, which tour that was, but every time you see him live, there is that music mix right before his concert, and it's the same concept of mixing songs together, speeding songs Mm. uh, from his career. There's a lot more Beatles in that mix now than before, and he also puts in, I don't know, it's probably not him, he probably has someone who mixes the stuff together, but a lot of cover versions of Beatles songs are used in the music that's played before his concerts. So, uh, you know, the fact that he's even into that, I find interesting. But that's one of the things that I love about Paul, is that he tries everything. You know, he's not stuck in one time, so, you know. I wish he would have just done that in his solo career and 
I mean, I mean, with wings, this, this is the thing with wings. I'm not saying wings needed the same sound for the whole run of their career. I'm just saying they needed the same song for an album. And that's why Band on the Run works. It's one sound from start to finish. It's just Paul doing the Lagos thing. There's not a random reggae song and a music hall song in there just thrown in like it's a solo McCartney album. You know, I think ballroom dancing and uh, English tea work perfectly in those releases because that's, mm-hmm. that, that's what Paul does. And to a degree, he worked in the Beatles, like we were talking about the White Album earlier. Stuff like Honey Pie and Martha My Dear and later on with like Maxwell Silver Hammer. They're great in just uh, showing off the creativity of so much Beatle content, you know, the, the Beatles can do all this different kind of music. But since Paul's the primary songwriter for Wings, I don't think it's got the same kitsch appeal to it. You know what I mean? If there was another John Lennon that was cranking out hits as well, or if Denny was at that level, then I, I think the McCartney chucking on his own kind of kitsch taste w- would have been more acceptable. Whereas here, it does oh. just feel, feel like, oh, well, you know... Henry, I don't really feel like doing another heavy blues rocker, so we're going to do 1882 instead, if that's all right. You know, it, there is the, there is that feel to it. Um, I think anyone who believes Paul was just the bassist is a bit ignorant at this point. <laughs> well, you know, Paul has always been like the most diversified artist, maybe on the planet. You yeah. know, if you really, it, the sad thing is that unless you're really a hardcore fan and you follow everything that he does, most people aren't even aware that his music stretches all over the place in every genre of music, practically, you know, except maybe jazz. Although there are certain songs like Distractions or, um, <laughs> I don't, you know, that kind of fall into that category. But, you know, if you, I don't mind if it's one person doing all of this. Mm. It could be more interesting when it's four very distinct personalities and the Beatles bringing it out. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of, as much as I love the whole Wings period, I think Paul became more of his own, right? He, you know, more of an artist on his own. Definitely. He experimented a lot more, and I find it far more interesting as much as, you know, I love Wings. Don't get me wrong. You know, that was an amazing period in the 70s, and, it, and he was putting out an album just about every single year, whereas now you have to wait several years between albums. <laughs> It's a different time altogether because now, you know, Egypt Station was the first new album in five years from him. But in the interim, you have all these remastered albums or you might get a live album or you might get a classical album or you might get a fireman album. or You know, so he does so many different things. I yeah. think uh, is Back to the Egg the next archive, I think. Well, they're saying Flaming Pie is going to be the next one. Oh, oh really? Oh, yeah. Oh, for a long time, it was rumored back to the egg in London Town, but now we've just been hearing Flaming Pie. Although Paul himself hasn't made that as a statement yet, but I do believe it's it's been floating around a lot. As soon as we heard about um, the Abbey Road box set, we were hearing about Flaming Pie. Mm-hmm. But I like the fact that he bounces around in different decades when he does. Yeah. It's not all chronological. So um, it did make sense with the first ones that were chosen. You know, like McCartney 1, McCartney 2, Tug of War, Band on the Run, and Venus and Mars for the first six or something like that. <laughs> my, well, my. It, it started, it actually started with Band on the Run. 
did they know it was going to be this whole series, the archive thing, or did it, or was it just there was something called the Band on the Run Archive Edition, and then that started a new series? I think they knew that mm. that Paul was going to do probably his entire catalog. You know, and it only makes sense in this day and age to do different versions because some people are not going to want to spend a hundred dollars or more on a box set for everything. It could really add up. How many people really care about wildlife enough <laughs> to do a uh, you know, buy a box set on that? I'm gonna um, get it. I'm gonna get it. I, uh, <laughs> I've really come to love wildlife over the last year. It's such a good album. It's a, it's really a fascinating thing, Sam, because. You know, you have a tendency to think that whatever albums sold the most or charted the highest have to be the ones that are the most popular. And I've had fans through the years who tell me they'd rather listen to Wildlife than listen to Tug of War. Oh, yeah, I'm totally with that. Like, yeah. that bit when Paul McCartney finally starts singing on Love is Strange, just the way he comes in. Many people... It's just one of my favourite moments in music. I don't know why. I think maybe that song has a, a, a purposeful lack of Paul. And by the time he comes on, you're like gagging for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, wild, oh, wildlife is... Paul, you, your opinion on some of your own stock is, 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 is so wrong. And, and not even in the sense of like, oh yeah, I wrote Blackbird as a civil rights song when I actually didn't. I mean, just like in the, in the sense that... Why do you say that? Because, you know... He's been saying that for years, and he is the writer. Yeah, but I could have sworn... I'm only parroting something that I've, that I've heard before, but as far as I'm aware, that was, that's was that been told to him, and then he ran with that. If, I, if I'm correct, someone will have to email in. Email in at paulmccallypod at gmail.com if you know the true origin of Blackbird. Uh, <laughs> if... There's a bootleg around the time with Paul and Donovan. And Paul is talking to Donovan about Blackbird, and his voice is kind of faint, but you can kind of hear what he's saying. That he played Blackbird for Diana Ross, oh. and so, and I don't, I forget what the reaction was, but why would he play Blackbird for Diana Ross is the question. So I think there's probably some truth in what he's saying. I mean, he is the writer. I try not to doubt the words of the Beatles when it comes to their own songwriting. When it comes to the history of knowing what they did day by day and remembering all of that, I don't expect anybody to be able to do that. That's why you have historians oh, well. like Mark Lewis and doing the work. By the way, since <laughs> I have a chance, <laughs> since I mentioned many years from now before, best Beatle book or the ones that Mark Lewis <laughs> Yeah, of, of course. So, don't let me forget to say Mark Lewis in there because you know his work Dude, is extraordinary. I'm seeing him October 25th. I'm seeing Lewison. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, for the for his Abbey Road tour in Birmingham, and I'm debating whether because I'm definitely going to put my hand up and ask a question, but do I open the question with, as the host of popular Paul McCartney podcast, Paul or Nothing? <laughs> <laughs> Just because there's going to be a room of like a thousand people, it's good. It's good business. Uh. It's good business practice, you know. Go ahead. Or I'll say, so my question to you is in two parts. Number no, number one, was Lennon smacked out on heroin during Abbey Road? And number two, why haven't you answered my emails yet, Mark? Huh? Why haven't you answered them? I'm begging you. I'll pay you to come on to come on the show. You can tell the you, you uh-huh. can tell the same two stories you tell to every podcast, but I don't I don't care. To be fair though, I love the interviews. You've you have you have got two with him on the things we said today, haven't you? There's actually um was on 
two times, I think. You should check my website because I've got two uh, interviews with him there that are completely separate. And one of them was really good because it was, it was right before TuneIn came out. So it was a lot of the revelations uh. that we were about to find out about in TuneIn before the book came out. But it's, it's really good. I mean, Mark is one of the best interviews going. He's got so much information just stored in his brain. I'm scared of that book. I'm so scared of that book. I haven't read it yet. You never read no, it? My, my, oh, my best friend, he does. Um, he did my McCartney 2 ep- episode on, on this, and he does Metallica podcast. He's read it. And every now and then, like when he's, when he's reading it, he'll just send me a quote, and it'll, it'll be something like George Harrison saying, she had huge tits. She had absolutely huge tits. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like just out of context Beatle quotes and stuff like that. I love that kind of stuff because it's weird how how so much detail has come out about like the Beatles' personal lives, and yet there really hasn't been much of a scandal around it. You haven't seen like you know anything talking about you know. But again, this is parroted from my friend, but talking about how you know George lost his virginity to a prostitute in in like Hamburg, and maybe they they were there and they they like bought it for her and stuff. Yeah, they managed to keep quite a squeaky clean image, despite you know having two years of Reaper Barn stories behind them, uh, which is well, you know, all these years later to hear about that, it's no big deal. You kind of expect, you know, young guys going to Hamburg, knowing what's there for something like that. I want the Ringo interview in detail about about an orgy. So Paul took off the uh, prostitute's clothes first, and then. George was undoing his shirt, which I found very confusing at the time because he was third, you know. <laughs> but like, but that's not going to happen, you know that. <laughs> oh no, no, because like, in, like whenever someone says Sam, what what would the question you'd ask Paul Paul McCartney? And it's the same question every time. Did you ever do coke off Linda's tits during the uh, Wings Over America tour? I don't know why, but that's what my immature brain immediately goes to. And I know that if I ever got an, an, an interview with Paul, I'd, I'd be immediately ejected from, you know, the room. I'd say something like, did Jimmy McCulloch point a gun at your head in 78, Paul? You know, as I'm, as I'm being dragged dragged off by his security team. I know you're Willie Campbell! Yeah. You know, just... <laughs> <laughs> I apologise, I did promise I wasn't going to talk about Paul is dead on this episode. Turn, turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. <laughs> You know, that's that's one thing. If if you ever had a chance to ask Paul just one question, which is impossible with, one, with all the questions one, I'd yeah. love to what would be the one thing that would stand out the most? I don't even know if I've come up with it oh. yet. But You've got 30 um, seconds with him. Uh, oh, I don't know. You know what I'd love to, to find out? This one thing that we'll never really know all that much about, unless Paul and Ringo do talk about it, and nobody ever asked them in, in at all is that there's so little that they've expressed in their opinions about each other's solo music yeah like what does Ringo think about driving rain I mean I doubt even Paul listens to his albums five years on you hear like Lennon hearing coming up I'm guessing that was on the radio I don't think he bought a copy of McCartney 2 and sat down and listened to the whole thing although we do know that Lennon bought a copy of Ram and this is the gap that I mentioned earlier. Uh, this is where my sister burst in with a note from the council saying that people had broken into my grandfather's house and started fires and stuff. Yeah, none of that happened. Like I said, this is the break. I tried to stitch both conversations back together after this. But before we dive right into that, I thought this would be the 
perfect time to do the housekeeping. Yes, the first part of this episode is free, but now you've got to pay the toll. If you want to get in contact with the show, if you've been enjoying this chat with Ken and you want to chime in in a more intimate and long-form fashion, then email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always love reading out your correspondence on this show whenever I get the chance. Hit me up on the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Find us on Facebook and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Check out our blog, our sister blog, with all sorts of extra content and articles, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com and finally of course check out our Patreon if you like this content you know if you've been liking this episode maybe this is the first time you've been checking out this show if you like what I'm doing you know this is something I've been I do in my spare time whilst doing well whilst trying to do a full-time job if you want to help support this if you want to help me make this a full-time thing I can expand the show and do all sorts of new content and get it out more importantly consistently and on time and more regularly and stuff like that which is something that I'm always wanting to do and you know get bigger guests on and improve my setup and my equipment and stuff or maybe you know you just want to help keep the lights running on this show uh, check out our Patreon which is www.patreon.com slash McCartneyPod where you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month just to help keep the show going but yeah enough plug-in I'm going to jump right back into this conversation with Ken Michaels, which took place about a week later. Let's see how seamlessly I can stitch it together. So uh, what we discussed about the Beatles not talking about each other's solo work, that was complete? No, just go on as a... uh, not, not particularly. So we can start there, yeah. That'd be a good place okay. to start. Um, I think I said that uh, Lennon talked about coming up uh, and how that kind of inspired him supposedly to come back into music. But I've also heard sources that him listening to the B-52's Rock Lobster uh, may maybe is just as in- influential on him returning to music as well. Perhaps they all just felt that it was best just to remain stum on each other's solo work. Well... As like a media move. Maybe, I don't know, maybe in the beginning while they were trying to establish themselves as solo artists... It wouldn't have been a good idea to criticize each other, although they still did anyway. You know, it's it's kind of sad. I, I wish that, you know, wh- when the sad day comes when Paul and Ringo are no longer with us, oh. I would have loved to have known what each other thought of each other's solo works. You know, you have certain select examples like George Harrison saying that he liked that would be something from the first McCartney album, or I'm Carrying from London Town. Oh, really? Uh, Oh, I I hadn't heard that. Those are two songs that, now that I think about it, I'm not surprised that those are the the two that Harrison picked. You know, one of the unfortunate things in, in studying the Beatles is that their solo work is so scrutinized, you sometimes think that, are we overanalyzing too much? There's so many things that I feel like if the Beatles had done certain things in their solo careers or certain songs and they were part of Beatles songs, they'd be accepted more. Mm. I've just done an episode where I've been listening to McCartney one again, kind of live, live with the listener. Hopefully me, hopefully me talking over it will bypass all that pesky copyright. But I was talking about how, me being Sam Wiles in 2019, I have a great vantage point to look at all of this stuff. I mean, only Egypt Station's come out whilst I've really been interested in McCartney specifically as a, a solo artist. Maybe possibly new, but I wasn't aware of that at the time. So I really get to just see the music for what it is, and I really appreciate that. But whilst I was listening to McCartney slash McCartney 1, as we call it here on Paul 1, I think, 
I was overwhelmed with the empathy I was feeling towards Beatle fans who had just listened to Abbey Road and Let It Be, and then and then had to listen to McCartney One and kind of accept that. Yep, this is what you're gonna get instead of the 1971 Beatles album. Yeah, I could imagine a lot of people reacting quite strongly to uh, McCartney One. There's a lot of filler. There's a lot of filler on that album, and uh, it definitely wasn't a fine enough substitute, was it? Really. Uh, well, I mean, if if you're going to compare every single thing to Abbey Road, <laughs> you know, or the White Album, everything's going to fall short for the most part. Oh no, I get I get that, but it's just because of the breakup. That's the last product that probably everyone would have bought, and you'd you'd like to think that he would have come out with Ram, even though Ram for some reason wasn't critically regarded at the time. But that was a you know a George Martin esque album. See, at the time when, when McCartney came out, I would have been um, almost 11. Mm-hmm. And um, even though I bought all the Beatles music as a group relatively when they came out, I don't remember the order of everything then with the solo music. I just know that eventually I bought all the solo music fairly close, maybe not chronologically in order. And so I never really thought, oh, wow, what a disappointment the McCartney album was. Mm-hmm. And... You know, you talk about songs being filler. You know, one man's filler is another person's, you know, something really exciting to, to another person. Like, it's in recent years, I've come to really love Karina Krohr. So, folks will be aware that this is the second part of this, of this conversation by now. And last uh-huh. time you started off the conversation by... Uh, Talking about how much you liked the film yesterday, and you've just, you've just done the same again now. You've come on, you're, you're <laughs> praising Krina. Is it Krina Crawl or a Crawl Ray? Um, I'm not quite sure, to tell yeah. you the truth. Yeah. But you know, when, when you asked me about my favorite Beatles movie, I just thought you meant in general, but it could be fiction or something. So Don't weasel but... your way out of this one, Michaels. I've got you penned. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, there are still quite a few Be- Beatles films for me to go through, actually. I'm actually yet to sit down and watch Let It Be the whole way through. Like it is possibly one one of my favourite documentaries ever, but it is a bit of a slog to actually process as as an entire document. Like I've probably seen the whole thing in terms of its footage twenty times, but never in actually one sitting. Even even Help with all of its flaws is probably more of a a watchable experience, isn't it? Help is my favourite Beatle movie. Oh okay. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't really see the flaws in Help. And, and Let It Be, you know, I had an interesting experience watching Let It Be a few years ago because it was the first time in like 10 years that I had watched it. And I was always under the impression that it was such a depressing film. And it's not as bad as people make it out to be. You know, it just seems like a band going through rehearsals. It's a normal, you know, every band has its problems. Every band fights. You know, there's always some level of boredom sometimes mm-hmm. in every rehearsal. You know, it's just completely normal. It's reality, if anything. But, um, you know, aside from the, the, the fight that Paul and George had <laughs> in the film, which is so overblown at this point. It's a, it's a minor spat, isn't it? It's just like a, yeah. it's just them talking about a guitar part from Hey Jude like a year ago. It's like, okay. Yeah. It's, it's not a tough film for me to watch now. Are you looking forward to Jackson's... Um kind of recontextualization of all of that footage well absolutely i think the more that you see the closer you get to the reality of what it was we're going through a time right now in the last few years where you know there's this accusation of um what's the word 
when you when you rewrite history to serve your yeah. own ends, yeah, it, it's like when um, the White Album the, uh, came out with all the outtakes, and Giles Martin was there to to say that it wasn't as bad. The relationships weren't that bad in in the studio, and it wasn't all misery and everything. And it, you know, there are fans who are just looking at this, saying you're trying to rewrite history because they already have in the back of their minds accepted the narrative of what was happening at the time, what we believed to be how they were gradually breaking up and splintering off. And the white album is an album of a lot of solo work, you know, and and all this other stuff when Giles Martin's trying to present another way of looking at it, you know, um, same thing with let it be. There are a lot of people who are, are are afraid now that we're going to get this, um, I don't know. Whitewashed. Version yes, of, version. Yeah, I get that because Peter Jackson is a fan. Like Michael Lindsay Hogg, when he was doing all of that, was very much in the circle. Uh, so he wasn't coming at it with like the rose tinted glasses that I know Miss, Mr. Jackson is going to have. But he's such a fantastic filmmaker that it's it's going to be interesting no matter what he does with his approach to the material. Like I'm just going to be interested. Oh, Peter Jackson's doing a Beatle film. I'm in. Like no matter what happens. Conceptually alone, the ticket's been sold already. Yeah, but the thing is, based on everything that we've read, a person who has listened to all the Let It Be bootlegs is going to have a, a probably a, a different opinion of what went on because that person has observed a lot more. If you know all the audio of what went on in January of 69 you're probably much more knowledgeable on that subject. And now if you get camera work, if you actually got film footage of certain things happening beyond the Let It Be film, then you're closer and closer to reality of what happened. But there's also that danger in how you edit everything. You can make everything look like it was a happy time or more happy than it really was. So, But the more information that's out there, the more that we hear, the more that we see, the closer we'll be to knowing more. Oh, oh, definitely. Like, going back to what you're saying about, like, you can create narratives from this Beatles footage. Like, you could definitely take all of the, the Let It Be sessions and boil it down to, you know, that, that horrible bootleg uh, white power where, where um, it, 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 it highlights the early kind of political ideas that McCartney was shopping around for the Get Back mm-hmm. for the get back sessions, like the famous Pakistani verse in Get Back and stuff. And I'm sure you could cr- use all of that footage and create some sort of horribly twisted narrative out of all of the footage of Let It Be, and it would all seem to make sense. But like you say, uh, the, more, the more footage we have and the more we see and the, the more interpretations we have, hopefully we'll get an average that is the truth somewhere. Hey, Sam, the word I was looking for was revisionism. Revisionism, okay. Yeah, perfect. You know, it's early in the morning right now, so my brain is... <laughs> it's going to take a while for me to, to say everything I need to say properly, so... I mean, well, it's it's a good thing radio's not in the morning or anything. <laughs> Some of us are. <laughs> it's kind of funny in a way, because when I do my podcast shows, sometimes the stuff that we talk about after we finish recording is more interesting <laughs> than what goes into the show when you just ramble on and talk about anything. Which I, I cannot believe, because the show, The Things We Said Today, is one of the most interesting podcasts out there. I've absolutely been binging it lately. I think I mentioned that earlier. 
but yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's so much. There's so much, and I find it so cool that I I can go back and like hear a review of new when it had just come out and see what mm. see what Beatle fans initially thought. That's not your only podcast, though. You've got Talk More Talk. Um, right. which, and it took me far too long to realise that there's a Paul McCartney song called Talk More Talk from, from a place to play. I just thought it was like, oh, that's a good name that they've chosen there. That's what I've always wanted to use. Yeah. But I, I thought certainly for a Beatles show, there'll be a lot of Beatles fans that may not know that song. So for a solo, a solo Beatles show, I guess it works better. It's a strange so. song, that, isn't it? The way it starts with all of that, those weird, like, seeming like reviews of Paul McCartney's music that are all warped and with that strange orchestral score. Yeah. To me, that's the best part of the song. I thought it was going to go into a much more interesting, I'm not saying like Revolution 9 area, but just something a bit possibly more like Fireman-ish. And then it just goes into Talk More Talk, which was a bit of a letdown for me personally. Yeah, it's a bit of a bog standard one for me. I think I think like George Martin would really like it in that kind of lame pop boiler way. Hmm. Well, Talk More Talk to me is a lot of, um, it's the same kind of process as I Am the Walrus, in a way, lyrically, just throwing out words Mm -hmm. that may not make much sense, but they flow together well and they create imagery, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And I love the fact that Paul was trying to embrace the 80s and the sound of the 80s instead of just putting out the more traditional, pure McCartney sound. The the Press to Play album is a combination of that. You've Mm -hmm. got more traditional stuff like Only Love Remains. And then you've got Talk More Talk and Pretty Little Head and those songs, which uh, I think led the way to The Fireman. Pretty Little Head especially, definitely, yeah. I wish, like, whenever McCartney does albums where he's got, like, one weird, kooky Professor McCartney techno synth song, I'm always just uh, clawing, foaming at my, please, just do another one. Why aren't there two songs, like... Back in Brazil, why aren't there three songs like Frank Sinatra's Party, you know? See, if you like the weirder stuff that Paul does, then why wouldn't you like Talk More Talk? I like the weirdest bit in it, the, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> beginning of it and the end of it, but yeah. the middle of it's very bog-standard 80s, I felt. I'm, I'm more apprehensive about this period, probably more than anything Wings did. Flowers in the Dirt, I've been dipping my toes in. I'm, I do try to keep kind of faithful to the format of the show and not look too far ahead off the ground's going to be the next one for me uh, there's going to be a very interesting bike ride ahead i'm sure where i'm going to where i'm where i'm going to work and I have to just stop my bike every five seconds and go what is this what where are the b-sides i've heard the b-sides are good let's skip to that bit hmm off the ground's a fascinating album to talk about there's no doubt about it off the ground probably holds a record where the extra material and the B-sides are just as good, if not better, in some ways than, than what's on the album. But then again, I like most of what was on the album. But there's so much re- really interesting stuff that he just made as bonus cuts on CD singles. And it's like, <laughs> why aren't these on the album? You know, he could have easily have made a double album. Yeah, let's go back to that Red Rose Speedway thing. It's, he seems very uh, inconsistent with the ability to choose his, the best of his own material. Which can be fun, because, you know, it's nice that some B-sides are good songs, not just stuff where you, you know, really empathise with why they were left on the cutting room floor. Like, it, like it's fantastic to find something like Frank Sinatra's Party or uh, nothing, for, nothing for Free, for, for, for example. Right. 
See, that's another thing. See, I remember you telling me how much you love nothing for free. Yeah, it's fantastic. So there, there's, there's Paul, again, embracing a more modern sound. And then in the 80s, he was doing the same thing. And I don't, I don't understand how, you know, a lot, a lot of fans who love the Beatles and the 70s stuff really detested the 80s. I don't understand it. <laughs> you know, the production and the sound of it and, uh, you know, the heavy synthesizers and drums. I never had a problem with it, you know. You know, may, maybe people can just feel the Reaganism and Thatcherite overtones <laughs> drenching the album, perhaps. The album cover definitely didn't uh, help it, I think. I think it's a fantastic photo to include it in like a book of just photos of Paul McCartney, but yeah, I don't, it definitely probably didn't strike it with the hip young kids, did it? Like, mm. you know, could you imagine? Probably you know, not. Some some thirteen or going George Horrell? Oh yeah! <laughs> now this is now this is happening. I'm sure happening must have been a phrase in 1986. 86. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so Kim. Everyone can find all of your stuff at kenmarkersradio.com. You've got your podcast, The Things We Said Today, which is your Beatle one. You've got Talk More Talk, which is both a podcast and a video cast on Facebook as well and on YouTube. It's, it's Facebook and YouTube. That's, that's true. Talk More Talk is actually a live broadcast, and it happens every other Monday at 9 o'clock on Eastern Standard Time. And if you just go to our Facebook page, you can like us and you can watch the show live as it's happening and you can write in with comments as we're talking. Which is fun to do, yeah, which is very fun to do. (laughs) I've had all of you on now besides Kit. I've had all of you on now besides Kit and then I'll have done done the talk more talk bingo then. I'll I'll, I'll be be able to tick that one off. Okay. Um, Yeah, so... uh, the uh, show remains on our Facebook page, mm-hmm. and it's also available on YouTube. And then if you just want the audio, then you can go to podbean.com. It's also on Spotify. It's on um, iTunes. It's on a whole bunch of you know outlets. Mm-hmm. So it's all over the place, Talk More Talk. And, and Things We Said Today is um, also the audio only, since it's strictly an audio show. The audio is on YouTube as well. It's on Podbean and iTunes. So, you know, similar places for both shows. And Things We Said Today is also bi-weekly. But, you know, you don't get to hear it as it's live. So, um, yeah, we just did over... We've done 300 shows of Things We Said Today recently. Wow. And uh, Talk More Talk, we've completed something like 25, because we just started that a year ago. We started it when Egypt Station came out. That was our first show. And so it was a great way to kick off a new show with a brand new album. A good album as well. Yeah. A good new album, which is... Oh. Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I honestly cannot recommend air, all, all of your stuff. I, like like I say, I've been getting into the things we, we, we said today in a big way. Talk more talk. It is a Illuminati of, <laughs> of Beatle individuals coming together for one show. So to have all of those inputs all at once is very unique you know uh-huh unlike the things we said today it it, it fit like everyone like i knew everyone on it so if you're deep in in this mccartney beetle podcasting world then obviously they're going to be very familiar with all of you which should be really fun yeah and you know there's now so many podcasts out there it's mind-boggling there's there's you know, new uh, ones we've got I, i've been listening to uh, nothing is real 
Okay, I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, we've got Nothing Is Real. Uh, a Submarine That Is Yellow has just come out. <laughs> this Obviously, we've got Something About The Beatles, Fab Four Free For All. Screw it, let's just talk about The Beatles. Uh-huh. I Am The Egg Pod in London's been going for it for a while now. That's very good, uh, even though they bashed McCartney too, and I nearly fell off my bike in disgust. Uh-huh. But yeah, there's probably never been a better time to be a Beatles fan, really. And there never seems to be any issue with, like, I'm not gonna, ever going to get bored of new people reviewing Band on the Run. I want to hear as many people's interpretation of their album as possible. Well, you know, the beauty of this all is that you can have so many different opinions about this music, the group, the solo music. You could have opinions from people who lived through the Beatles as it was happening. Mm-hmm and fully experience it. And then you could have brand new fans who are just discovering it now who may have a completely different opinion about the Beatles and their solo music. So, you know, it excites me that, you know, someone, you're, you you told me 27? Yes, yes. Right? So you could have a very different perspective on on the Beatles music and, and their solo music. And like you said, you don't walk into every solo album with all the history to of what preceded it or built-in prejudices or something like that. It'd be, it'd be nice if we could all just approach every new album as though it's some fresh new product and what do you think of it without comparing it to everything else that the artist has done. You know? And um, you know, there are a lot of Beatles fans who discovered the Beatles first through the solo music, and they have a very different opinion of this entire catalog. So it's fascinating to hear what everybody has to say you know, and um, I should also mention that you meant you, you talked about the two podcasts that I do, but the other show that I do called Every Little Thing is really, you know, the bulk of my work because I've been doing Beatles programs on the radio since 1982. And most of the shows that I've done are music shows. So it plays the group music, all the solo music, rarities. I play family members, I play Apple artists, I play cover versions, I play novelty records, I do thematic sets in every single show. Uh, Most of my shows have interviews that I've done, they're my own original interviews, and um, I also have news every single week, and I have trivia every single week, and I've been doing this regularly since 1982. The trivia is fucking fantastic, folks. The prizes are insane as well. The prizes are absolutely insane. I don't know how mm-hmm. you do it. Um, if that's one thing you do to today's today, guys and girls, after you give me a five-star review on iTunes, please look at Ken's uh, trivia stuff because you are definitely in to win something fantastic there. Definitely. Okay, well, you're referring to my website. Yeah, definitely. So, so the website every single week has trivia where you could win one of nine prizes, and that could be books, CDs, or DVDs, sometimes vinyl. And I try to, if I can, get all the latest products that are out there, and uh, there's always a winner every single week. The trivia can be easy one week and difficult the next, and that's just one of the many features that I have on my website, which actually there's tons of interviews on the website. There's four Mm. pages worth of interviews with people in the Beatle world, including Beatle authors and some of the people that I work with. You know, I interviewed Alan Cozen and Al Sussman uh, on my show. And Al, you know, how far back do you go with things we said today, Sam? (laughs) I've probably gone back through the last like three or four years worth of episodes so far. 
So then you've heard Al Sussman on the show and Steve Marinucci. Of course, yeah. Okay, so I've interviewed them. They're on the website. If you check it out, KenMichaelsRadio.com, there's so many features on there. I know the trivia is very popular. You know, it's probably the most popular page of the website. So you got interviews, there's constant information, there's links to articles on the Beatles, there's photos of me with the various people that I've interviewed. It's it's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I just keep on building and building on it and hopefully adding more features. It's become, uh, you know... It, it's become a monster. <laughs> you know, it's got to take it over my life. Sometimes I do more work on the website than I do on, on the radio shows. So, um, yeah, I would definitely advise everyone to check that out. There's a page on the website that's all about the show Every Little Thing, which is now on 39 radio stations. So you can look up all the radio stations that carry it. <clears throat> you can edit this. You can look up all the stations. You can look up all the stations that carry it when they broadcast it and there are links to their websites so if you want to hear that radio show which really like i said is most of what i've done mm -hmm. probably 80 percent of all the work i've done in radio is every little thing and i very much appreciate people who listen to things we said today and and watch or listen to talk more talk too but um you know every little thing has been my baby for almost 40 years now so to get a taste of what i do in some ways, I think what I do best is every little thing because I love playing the music, talking about the music, you know, having fun with trivia, doing thematic sets, making people think what songs could work in certain themes. You know, it's um, it's a very refreshing approach to a Beatles program. And like I said, I've been doing this since 1982. Uh, in most cases, live on the radio, but the show has been in syndication for about eight, nine years now. So I'm gradually in my spare time trying to get new radio stations to take the show. And um, so if anyone who's listening wants to recommend a radio station where you think it could work, please let me know. In this day and age, you know, um, the signal going out over FM or AM is not as important, I think, as the stream. Because mm -hmm. you can listen to just about any radio station around the world if it's streaming. And that's an amazing thing. Doesn't matter if you're an AM station in, in the middle of uh, Kansas <laughs> or you're the biggest station in London. It's it, You still get streamed no matter what. So there's like a level playing field there. So it's a fascinating thing how radio's changed. Mm. And um, I'm glad to be a part of it as with all the work I do with radio programs and with podcasts. No, honestly, dude, I wish you every success because you really are the shepherd for the Beatle kind of uh, mic microphone community, shall we say. Because, like, <laughs> you know, ev everything that came in rock and roll after the Beatles, you know, the same can pretty much be said for you on some level. You know, everyone who's been talking about the Beatles in incessantly into a microphone in a slightly maddened way is all in your footsteps, man. You know, standing on the shoulders of giants and all that malarkey. I wouldn't have started this this show without the likes of you and and many of the fantastic podcasts as well. And I'm I, I feel honoured to have you on and be a part of this community. And I can't wait to have you on again to actually stick to a topic. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that'll be an ongoing thing. Well, our our listeners could can guess whether or not we're actually going to stick to can it. Can actually do that. <laughs> Yeah, it, it might happen one of these days. When our feet are on the ground, yeah. <laughs> I, knew I, I knew I'd get one back at you. 
Yes. You're a big McCartney 2 fan, I could tell. McCartney 2 is fantastic. It's almost as good as Ram. It's almost as good as Band on the Run. Uh, Take out bogey music and put on the Richard Niles version of the Blue Sway song, perhaps, or Check My Machine, and you're off. You're good to go. Now, leave, leave bogey music. Take off Nobody Knows. Nobody Knows is very, tr- is very, uh, uh, it's clearly just McCartney fucking around on a guitar for five minutes, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, it, to me, it just sounds like him making up stuff in the studio and, and, you know, just being happy with it and saying, here you go. Some people like something like that that's spontaneous. I don't know. It just seems so effortless. Yeah, I, well, a good comparison would be to something like Ooh You. Like, that was just an, an instrumental at first. So, like, he was mm-hmm. he was just messing around and just came up with a riff. But he wasn't, you know, diverting his focus by singing as well. So he's just, you know, doing this great riff that's, you know, in the way that he'll do the same again at the end of Sea Link on Egypt Station, you know, 40 <laughs> years later. Um, and, oh, God, I've completely lost my train of thought now. But but Uyu oh. became a really good song. Oh yeah, but like yeah, the fact is that like he actually went back to it and then added stuff to it, and that's why it's a decent song. Whereas you can tell that he's doing play, both playing guitar and messing around uh, with his vocals in the studio at the same time, possibly, and the lyrics mm. just just aren't as good either. You know, if you can mm. tell what they are at all. Um, but we're not going to divert ourselves into an entire discussion on McCartney 2. I'm going to let you go and live your life to the fullest and and uh, because you probably need all the time you can get to focus on every little thing. <laughs> <laughs> Kent, thank you so much for doing this, bro. Thank you so much for coming back for a second time as well. And I'll put all of your information down, down below. Um, everyone, make sure you hit up Ken. Okay. Well, thank you for all the kind words. It's very flattering. And uh, thank you for having me on. And Whenever you're ready, I'm ready to do another one. Everyone, that was the Beatles podfather. Ken, thank you so much for coming on. Take care, dude. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. And there we are, folks. That was my chat with the legendary Ken Michaels. I still can't believe it happened. I still can't believe I'm in regular correspondence with him. He's such a nice guy and such a supportive member of the McCartney community as well. And even so, our chat was even longer than what you've just heard. You had a little epilogue in the main section, and very, very shortly I'm going to get this over with and leave you with a fantastic little epilogue bumper at the end of this chat. But yeah, even on top of that, we still spoke for possibly another hour, over an hour and 15 minutes, about all sorts of other things, just talking about podcasting and life and even more Beatles stuff and Skype woes and all of that was just incomparably precious to a young podder like me and I just want to take a quick moment to thank Ken for coming on the show and it's always so much fun to let loose a little and just talk plain Beatles and Paul. Of course I want to thank every one of you who's been listening to this show. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and all of mine and Ken's wild digressions into Beatledom and McCartneydom. Again, if you've got any opinions on today's episodes, hit me up on paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or at mccartneypod on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Pipes of Peace is on the way very, very soon. 
even though this itself was meant to be part two, the amount of notes that I prepared for such an album analysis with Ken Michaels obviously means that part two is ready to record uh, and that will be out shortly after part one. And then after that, I'm thinking I'm just going to crack right on with Press to Play. We're going to keep this train rolling and actually get some album content out there before I go back down the rabbit hole of bonus episodes. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Paul or Nothing. I'm Sam Wiles. Denny Lane has already been playing us out by now. I am sure. Peace and love, peace and love. Keep listening to Paul. Play us out, Denny. discussing with a friend earlier about about doing a troll ep- episode where I where I really rave the movie and I really like say how great it is and then release it on April 1st uh, <laughs> well you know there are some people who are coming around to that to that movie and they like it more certainly the music a lot of people are, are enjoying the music now more especially mm. the newer songs and they're not as harsh on the reinterpretations of Beatles songs so I actually put my vinyl copy of it on on today just whilst I was waiting to do this and I I wasn't that taken by a lot of them. The Yesterday is quite weak. The Long and Winding Road with all that Mm. 80s saxophone (laughs) was quite laughable. I actually chuckled quite a bit at that. Uh, It's always strange the way that he seems to like not abandon the Phil Spectorization of that song even though he's got a second chance to do it his way. Mm. It still sounds quite Phil Phil Spector is strangely. Well, I think the version from Broad Street <clears throat> is very um, adult contemporary-ish with the saxophone in there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's there's a version of The Long and Winding Road from the Flowers and the Dirt Sessions, which is very simple. Ooh. You know, and uh, it's it's truer to what he wanted originally. See, I, I, I'm in complete disagreement with Paul about that song because... I grew up on the Phil Spector version, and I loved it exactly as it was. And I think the song really needed something. It was way too bare, yeah. just the way it was in the movie. So everything else that he's done since then, except probably that version from the Flowers and the Dirt Session. And actually, he did perform the Long and Winding Road, I think, just him and a piano when he was on <clears throat> the Parkinson show. Ooh. One of the UK shows. Yeah, if you look yeah. at it... He did that, and that's probably more what you would like. It's it's a gorgeous song just by itself, Paul on a piano, but it really needed something else. I think it did need strings. The you know I there are some people who think you know if George Martin had produced it, it wouldn't have been overproduced. But then I'm so used to the Phil Spector version that I don't just doesn't bother me at all. Oh, um, I t- dude, I totally get that because as a initial Beatle fan you just listen to all of the music before you really dive into all of the literature and the backstory and to be honest if you asked like on Family Fortunes or I think it's Family Feud in the States uh, you know we asked a hundred people was there a different producer on Let It Be probably 99% of people would say no it was probably just George Martin wasn't it 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 doesn't sound glaringly like this non-canon release you know what I mean it's not Mm. It still feels like a Beatles album. The, um, I agree. You know when you see those visual illusions, and then once you've seen the, how the illusion works, you can't unsee it. 
it's kind of like that. Like once you've been exposed to the virus of the idea that Phil Spector's coming in and meddling, then it, it's, mm. it's very hard not to start seeing that whenever you listen to the music. Which, which, again, which isn't fair. Just approach it like we were mentioning earlier. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. You know, it's always important to know how people heard this music first, instead of dwelling on how people think about it later. Like there, there seems to be this anti-Phil Specter thing he going on. He did shoot for... his wife in the face, which is well, that has that has <laughs> nothing to do with the music. <laughs> I think something else. Compartmentalize here. What? Should you take it out on the music? You know, it's it's something completely different. But you know, he was looked upon as being this genius for his wall of sound in the '60s. It worked on those records. There are some people who think, including George Harrison, yeah. that "All Things Must Pass" was probably overdone with too much production. I don't agree. I think it worked for those songs. You know. Um, oh no! Especially like when you watch "Living in the Material World" and you see George adding in the layers. Um, of um, is it I could have you any time. You don't need a. I'd have you any time. Yeah, I'd have, I'd you, have any you any time. Yeah, like when he's adding all the layers, like yeah, actually Phil Spector made that song really work clearly by like adding in all that extra stuff rather than just having George banging away on an acoustic or a slide guitar as every song probably would have been without Phil Spector. Well, one of the things you're going to discover if you haven't already is that there is this camp of Beatle fans who likes who like less production. You know, the more stripped down, the better. And uh, George Harrison, after All Things Must Pass, I really think Living in the Material World has a Phil Spector vibe to it, even though there's only the one song, Try Some, Buy Some, which was an older recording that he used and just did his own vocal over it. But the rest of it is strictly produced by George Harrison, but it feels like Phil Spector. You know, there's some kind of Phil Spector vibe going on there. I don't know. I definitely think he was a a, a, a kind of a tutor for George, especially. Probably because, like, George was always a bit standoff with Martin, wasn't he? There wasn't a real kinship that, say, McCartney had. So maybe just for all, you know, for all things must pass and possibly for let it be, you know, George and Phil Spector had a real kinship. And George learned how to kind of do it the Phil Spector way in the way that McCartney kind of learned to do it the George Martin way. There's certain songs, especially like um, Extra Texture is a good example of that, that have, that have a very heavy plodding sound to it, which to me is very Phil Spector-ish, you know, like Grey Cloudy Lies or um, World of Stone, you know, to me it's very Phil Spector influenced. So, you know, but you're going to find these people who don't like Phil Spector, who don't like Jeff Lynne, you know. I don't get the Jeff Lynne hate. I don't get that one at all. He's awesome. He's great. He's, 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 but but also he's from the same part of England as me though, so I'm, I'm definitely very biased in that. I'm definitely <laughs> very biased in that. There's something that I'm probably going to talk about in my podcast, but when the '90s happened and MTV had Unplugged, which was a great series, and it was so refreshing to hear all these bands and solo artists doing songs stripped down without all the production, <laughs> and then you also had a lot of the the hard rock that came out of the 90s that wasn't very produced. You could say that about punk rock, too. And you have all these remastered box sets coming out with all that it takes and without hearing full production behind the songs and you're just hearing the band like the Beatles. And it sounds fantastic. It sounds fantastic to hear what these songs sounded like without hearing strings. 
you know, or um, you know, without a full band effort. When yeah. some, sometimes when you just hear demos, that could be just as refreshing and engaging as hearing the full, fully realized release from the past. So a lot of people are discovering that. And, um, you know, if any of these stripped down versions had come out originally, people would be saying, that's not good enough. <laughs> so uh, it's all in the way that you look at it. I think when um, Ken, a good episode for us could be the the best like Beatles and solo Beatle demos, because there are a couple of examples where I actually prefer the demo to the actual final song, uh, especially hmm. um, simple as that, uh, which was completely rechanged for the final like anti drug message. Uh, I was stunned when I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the words are completely different. You know? <laughs> it says, how did you go from that to what, what came out? Uh, so. But that sound of that, 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 like I was, I, I'm just hypnotized by that. I think it's pure, awesome McCartney. But the other one is, um, She's My Baby. Uh-huh. The, the remastered version of Wings at the Speed of Sound has a great demo of McCartney doing that. And it's just him on piano. The uh, right. demo of him doing um, Silly Love Songs is also really good as well. Just him him and Linda together as well. That, mm. that could be something worth mining. It could even be a good episode for your radio show, actually, if you haven't done that already. Well, then I'll steal that from you. Yeah, I'll I... make sure we do that before you get to it, then. 